Hey guys, welcome to the third edition of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. I'm your host, Ray Russell. Joining me, Steve Xat. Steve, I am so pumped to be back for another Monday Warfare. How about you, buddy? Yeah, I'm excited, man. One of my favorite scenes ever is this week. I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, it's too early for the Yeti, so I can't wait to see what it is. Uh, <laughs> this week we're going to be covering uh, two more weeks of Raw, two more weeks of Nitro. We're going to kick off with Raw here in a second. Uh, we're, we're starting with the week of October 2nd this week, Steve. And uh, before we get going, let's talk about signs here for a moment. You brought up on last Monday Warfare about Cornette's girlfriends and friends showing up in Johnson City with Raw signs and maybe some other anti-Hogan signs in the crowd also being confiscated. Uh, that pretty much uh, became the start of the WCW confiscation of signs on a on the weekly basis. And this week, according to a couple of different newsletters I researched, one being The Observer, The Melts, apparently WCW confiscated all signs here in Denver, Colorado for this show. And WCW handed out their own corporately approved signs for the fans to tell them who to cheer for and what to say. If I had worked hard on a sign, and I, and I remember being a kid and, and writing a few signs, and I was always a clever one. I didn't just write somebody's name and hold it up. I remember King of Hearts, Owen Hart. I, I found a bunch of cards laying around, put a bunch of King of Hearts on there, uh, and wrote King of Hearts, Owen Hart. I remember uh, Quang with the G, I, because me and my cousin loved to put over Quang because nobody else did, so that was the cool thing. So when Quang came to town, we, we I wrote Quang on a sign, and, and with the G, I... I I, I took the, the G, the part that hangs down, and I wrapped it all the way around to back to the top of the K, and I had an arrow pointing down at his name. Just clever things like that. And if I had worked hard on signs, and I had taken it, you know, for me, as I, and had it taken away from me as I entered a building, I would have completely deflated my, like, in my entire fandom. Like, I would have lost all interest in even seeing the show. You've basically silenced me as a paying fan and disregarded my time and my effort, and I found this really shitty on WCW's part. Yeah, I, I do too. It's pretty crap. Fans are paying. They should be able to say and do what they want. I mean, you, it's not like a soundstage and you're told when to applaud and when to clap and things like that. It's it's wrestling. You like who you like and you don't like who you don't like. And, and that's the end of it. You're not one to tell me uh, who I can root for and who I can't dislike. So yeah, this is pretty shitty on their part. It takes away this, the fans' ability to express themselves how they want. And uh, it's just a terrible look. A really yeah. bad look on it's WCW's like, part. It's like a sock in a gut, especially to a child. And it doesn't end there. Some fans had, had brought in markers and Sharpies and began writing on these new corporate signs on the back of them, to writing what they wanted to write to hold up. So now David Crockett, who you might remember as an announcer in the 80s, those, those who don't know David Crockett was still working behind the scenes for WCW. David Crockett was in charge now of trying to spot the fans writing on the new signs, holding up unapproved signs. Just absolutely ridiculous that they have somebody basically watching the cameras, monitoring the signs. You think uh, David Crockett's on his little handset? Look at it. 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 Look at what he wrote. Look at it. Look at it, Tony. That's so so terrible. He's, he's sending Doug it's Dillinger terrible. around to, to, to confiscate the signs. Kick him. Kick him like a dog. Yeah. Oh, oh David Crockett. Well, I just I just thought that was an interesting point because you brought up uh, what happened last week in Johnson City. So I followed up with this. I thought I just thought it was kind of interesting. Damn, damn that Eric Bischoff. But <laughs> damn Cornette. But we move into Monday Nitro for October 2nd, 1995. We are in Denver, Colorado. The show kicks off with Ric Flair interrupting Mongo, Keenan, and Eric Bischoff at the desk. I think this is our first interruption, if I'm not mistaken. It wouldn't be the last, that's for damn sure. No, no, definitely not. I think this is the first one. I, I'm pretty sure another wrestler does it the following week. So they make it a trend. 
and it's smart. I mean, you want to start the show off hot, and you want the you want to grab those initial viewers, so people are tuning in to not raw and getting like a rundown of a video, and then all of a sudden you turn to nitro and flares coming out. You're not going to change the channel on that. So it's pretty pretty smart move here by uh, Bischoff. Yeah, I like that whole anything can happen aspect. The feel here is pretty cool. And Flair's up here. He's talking about his feud with Arn Anderson, his match coming up with Arn Anderson. It's really, I, I don't know. I, I agree with you. Uh, it's Like I said, it wouldn't be the last time. We, of course, we've seen pretty much anybody and everybody do it uh, between now and the, the end of the Nitro run. Yeah, I just I like this original setup. I don't. I, I thought it was odd at the beginning where their backs returned to the uh, the ring, and and I love the look. I love the desk. I love the setup. I love up on yeah. the stage like that. It looked very professional. It really blew Vince McMahon's table out of the water. That's for certain. Yeah, I agree with you there. It, it is odd though that they're backs to the to the action. I know they're looking at monitors for the most part, but it still looks weird. We move on into the show. We get highlights of last week's Savage and Luger confrontation and their promo and, and everything that followed with the Giant and all that good stuff. And I'm all for promoting why things are happening, but that video package felt longer than it needed to be for me. And with only an hour of TV, I'd rather have gotten that couple minutes back and put it into the action, that the matches that are actually going to take place here. Like, I'm all for knowing why we're getting Luger and Savage here this week, but I just felt like they could have clipped the promo better. It seemed like they just wanted to play the whole thing out because it was a lot easier to do. Yeah. Well, they only had, what, 1.9 million viewers last week, so uh, they probably did have to put it all together just so people could know what the heck happened last week. We go straight from the highlights, though, right into the match. It's Lex Luger kicking things off with Randy Savage. You can't really get a whole lot bigger than that unless you're Hogan or Flair out there. And remember, Luger has his title shot and his career on the line here. Luger offered to put those things up in order to get Randy Savage in the ring this week. And I really don't know what was the point of doing that. Savage was eager to get in the ring with Luger anyway. So Luger has everything to lose here. As they lock up, they tangle to the floor all the way into a commercial break. Really weird. They lock up. They go outside. They're locked up on the outside. And we go into a commercial break. It was the longest lockup in wrestling history. But don't worry. According to the melts, Luger stalled the entire break. Nobody missed anything. Luger was uh, even heard repeatedly asking out loud to the producers, uh, the, the cameramen, if the break had ended yet so he could continue the match. Lex wasn't going to do a damn thing unless he was on TV. Uh, it makes sense. <laughs> I don't uh, have a problem with it. Uh, you're, just, you're just defending it because it's Lex Luger. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my, res I, my response I, to this, what a lazy asshole. Get in the ring and fucking do well, something. It makes you wonder if it, if, it was, if he was told to do that. You don't want to give anything away during the commercial break. Everyone else does. Uh, oh. <laughs> we'll find out as, as time goes on here. <laughs> but if we do return for break. Luger does get back in the ring finally. He slaps Macho Man, a form of payback. Savage slapped him a week or two ago during a promo. Luger does not want to be suplexed on the floor is a note I put here. I don't know if you paid attention uh, how long it took. Savage seemed to get Luger in a position to suplex him on the floor, and they stood there for seemingly ever as Luger said, I am not going to take this move, Randy Savage. That's the way I took it anyway. I don't know what was going on. It took forever. And uh, Lex turns it into a hang hangman's neckbreaker on the floor, and Lex never did that before, so it felt like an audible to get out of the suplex spot so that neither one of them looks stupid. Yeah, I didn't really pick up on it too much. I mean, with the way the match started, it just felt like it was going with the flow of the match, the way they tied up and never let go. I figured it was just some stupid spot they were going for because... <sighs> Luger's still in WWF mode but at this point, and I don't know if he ever gets out of it. But, yeah, very sloppy to start. Not a very good match. Yeah, I'd almost call this Lex Luger mode at this point. Uh, Lex Luger mid-90s and beyond mode anyway, because 
I can't even call this WWF mode. The, the Luger going in the ring, his punches were just terrible. They weren't even connecting. A sloppy press slam. Uh, they do a, a spot where they fight over a backslide. Finally, the, the two wind up cracking heads. Alex goes tumbling to the floor. Savage goes up top, comes off with a double axe handle or double sledge, as it's called in WCW. They wind up back inside. The ref takes a bump this early on the show. I, I, how do you feel about ref bumps in the opening match on the show? A little too early, you think? Uh, yeah, I would say so. It, it's just Bischoff, and that's how these shows are. They feel a lot like that, where he's just throwing everything at the wall. Everything you can think of, every angle, every gimmick, every everything to help. He, he's doing whatever he can to keep people interested in things like that. But yeah, a ref bump early, it's a little dicey, because then you, you can't use it really the rest of the show unless you're um, Vince Russo. Well, we'll Not find out time fan. and time again, WCW tries to do the ref bump as, <laughs> as often as possible to get out of situations like this. But anyway, so Randy Savage whips Lex Luger into Randy Anderson. So the ref goes down. Macho delivers the big flying elbow drop, but there's no referee to make the three count. So here comes the giant and a choke slam to Randy Savage drives him down and Luger didn't see it. Or did he? The drama continues there. Instead of covering Savage, and this takes forever too, Lex takes forever to pull Savage up. Savage is knocked out for the chokeslam. Pull him up and place him in the torture rack to get the win. Match went about eight and a half minutes without commercials. With commercials, I think a little over 11 minutes. Uh, this match was sloppy, and based on how Savage liked to plan shit out, and he couldn't have been very happy with the way this turned out. I know Lex wasn't setting the house on fire in the WWF either, but it feels like he's doing even less here, seeing how little he can actually have to do. I just I thought this match was... Really, really bad. Yeah, it wasn't very good at all. You're right. Macho was probably pissed off at how little or how good this match looked out uh, came across. It, it, I was excited for it. Oh, yeah. You know, it's Macho and Luger. You figure it'd be something decent. And then, yeah, I don't know what's up with Luger. I, it's kind of bad that he thinks he can just come in and act like this. I know he, he had an attitude and stuff like that, but Sting had to go to bat just to get him here. Bischoff doesn't even like him. And he's going out here and putting on performances like this two or three weeks into his tenure. Uh, it's not a very good look. I mean, I would, you think, I, I mean, me personally, if I got, if somebody went out on a limb and got me hired, I'm going to do everything I can to show that I was worth it. And we haven't gotten that yet from Luger at all. It's Halloween Havoc promo time. And this is actually shown, I believe, during the commercial break of the prior match. And we learned that man becomes the monster, which is the monster truck. And then the monster truck becomes the man. Lame. How do you feel about this, Steve? Oh, man, it's so stupid. <laughs> it's so bad. I've heard it so many times because obviously we we watch these shows to to do this podcast and the monster becomes the man, like the way he says it. And I'm so tired <laughs> of hearing it. I'm just ready for Halloween Havoc to be over and uh, we can move past these uh, vignettes or these commercials because I'm tired of hearing it. So cheesy, so cheap, so stupid, a waste of time. I don't even know what to say about Halloween Havoc 95. It's so bad and it's so hokey that I actually enjoy it somewhat. But that that's because I lived it. If I didn't live it, I would hate it. Yeah, I think it was actually the monster truck match that Gordon Soley finally clocked out on WCW. He said, I can't defend this promotion anymore. I can't watch it. I can't be associated with it. And he was already retired by this point from television. Yeah, I just remember Gordon Soley kind of clocking out on wrestling or at least WCW once the monster truck thing went down. But uh, we get a promo here for WCW Saturday night upcoming. It's Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman taking on Dick Slater and Bunkhouse Buck. Why did Johnny B. Bad miss his U.S. title shot last week? 
We'll find that out. Also, Hacksaw Jim Duggan meets Big Bubba Rogers in the never-ending god-awful match tour between these two that can, seems to go on for years here. And uh, we're also moving into Jim Duggan's uh, somehow legal taped fist phase. Remember Granny Duggan or whatever the hell her name was? Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> taped fist champion of the world or, or whatever. And uh, yeah. <laughs> as we come back from the Saturday night teaser, oh, yeah, it's time again. I know you don't care for it, Steve, man, but these are great segments. I don't care what anybody says. It's Disco Inferno, and he's out there again, and he's dancing at ringside, and Eric Bischoff plays it up so great because the music hits, and we're supposed to assume we're supposed to assume that he's not supposed to be out there, even though the lights are set up for him, the disco ball's spinning, the camera's even doing a fade-in and fade-out of disco and the disco ball as he dances. I loved when he did this. It's just a throwback to his stupidity on Radio WWF that I've mentioned before, and I, I just thought this was fun. And this was perfect for Disco Inferno. Had you only seen this of Disco Inferno, maybe you wouldn't have gotten so sick of him. Now, I agree, as the years went on and all the nonsense that he did went on, I lost all interest in Disco Inferno as a human and as a wrestler and as an entertainment aspect of the show. But here, when he was doing this, I thought this was perfect for him. It was so corny, I thought I loved it. I love corny things sometimes. This is one of those corny things I love. And I don't know, you still not digging it? You don't think this is a little bit funny? Uh, It's not funny at all. (laughs) Uh, It's cheesy and stupid. But if this is done and... You know, we see this the next couple of weeks. I know he interrupts somebody like Hawk. Now, the payoff should be him just getting the, he's going to piss off or do it to the wrong person and he's going to get the break speed off of him. That's the payoff. And that would be entertaining to me because that's what I would look forward to. But as far as what's going on right now, now I have uh, zero interest and I can care less about what Disco Inferno is doing. Yeah, I'm just. I don't I enjoy- have the, the background that you do uh, with the radio WWF. I never heard it, so I mean, if I if I was hearing that and had an idea of who he was and things like that, and he's probably funny on radio when nobody cared what he was saying anyway. Whereas this seems too contrived or too controlled, I should well, say. From like, I'm, the, I'm just looking at it from standpoint. my my 1995 eyes and uh, eliminating everything that he did beyond this. So I'm just kind of looking at it from here, and I just. I enjoy little things like this in comedy versus making a mockery of the product in the ring type comedy. So if you can, if you can do this and keep it out of the ring, I'm cool with it. I guess uh, we go from the, we, we take a turn to the exact opposite though. We go straight from disco Inferno dancing in the aisle way to Eddie Guerrero taking on Dean Malenko. And before the bout, we go back to the main event and we see a clip of Eddie Guerrero wrestling Jushin Liger. So it appears Liger did do a little more than just that first Nitro while he was in the States. I didn't remember that match, but Eddie pins Liger clean with the frog splash. And they claim the winner of that match was supposed to meet Malenko here tonight. That seemed weird because the winner of a random match on the main event meets a dude in his WCW debut on Nitro. No belts are on the line. It just seemed a little odd that they just kind of worked that in there. They like to do that. It's like, oh, we got to show this highlight of a match, so let's make it mean something. Right. So it's a random match on main event that gives you a random match on Nitro that the, before we, I'll let you go into the match and things like that. But, um, and I'll talk about it on the other side of that, but yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah. And these guys had had classic matches in ECW. I knew that from the after mags and I had actually purchased one of the ECW, uh, arena shows. So, and I saw one of their matches on, on that tape as well. So I kind of had an idea of what to expect here. This was an awesome match going on. And, 
And meanwhile, we get a split screen, though, with a fucking Jimmy Hart and Hulk Hogan limo pulling in. Then they cut away from the match completely. And I'm like, what the hell is this? We missed almost a minute of the match. Felt like the guys in the ring were told, though, like because if you paid attention when they come back, the match seemed to slow down right when they were cutting away, and it seemed to be picking back up right when they came back. So I'm hoping that we didn't miss a whole lot of action there, but that was just complete disrespect to two new guys trying to break in, trying to get the spotlight on them, because it's more important to see Hulk Hogan pulling in in a limo than it is. And I get it. These guys have no name value as far as the national... Uh, spotlight goes but that's the whole point of nitro to put the spotlight on guys like this for the future meanwhile we got to see hogan pulling in a limo what'd you think of that yeah uh that was my biggest turn away on this match and it, it didn't start it didn't stop there with hogan pulling in like the whole match the the commentary had no desire to even talk about what was going on in the match right um they were too concerned about storylines and hogan actually being on nitro and and everything else under the sun that's going on in, EC, in WCW other than what the match is going on in the ring. And, and um, it, it took away from it for me. But the, the match was incredible. It, it was really good. They didn't have a lot of time, but they went out there and put on a show for what, what time they did have. It made me want to see more for sure. But the match itself was just taken away from by the commentary. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were there were some good spots in this match. Eddie with a top rope dive onto Dean in the aisleway. That was a thing of beauty. Uh, brain Buster on Dean goes for the frog splash. Dean gets his knees up. Dean tries a victory cradle. Eddie drops down on top of him, grabs the win in five minutes and twenty five seconds. What did you think about some of the spots in this match? Oh man, Eddie's top rope dive is like you said, a thing of beauty. It, it just looks so awesome. He got all the, his legs are all the way back, his arms are back. All you can really see was his chest and his head. Unless you had ECW, uh, you wasn't seeing this stuff. Just a really, really good match, and it's the start of really the cruiser. I think Bischoff, I don't know if it was this match, but he mentioned because of people like these two, they're looking into bringing in a cruiserweight title, so they kind of hinted that, so we're going to be seeing more of this. And as a kid, I enjoyed the hell out of this match. It was very fast-paced and entertaining. Um, yeah. But I do want to touch on something real quick. Uh, mm-hmm. Beginning of this match, so Malenko, obviously the man with a 1,001 holds or whatever, Right. Mongo said uh, there's a book. Oh, I already know where this is going. Go on. Go on. And uh, he asked how Malenko comes up with a thousand and one. And Bischoff immediately tells Heenan, don't you even think about it. Like He wouldn't even let Heenan talk about it. So yeah. it was kind of funny. It was awkward. But Bischoff shutting down Heenan was, was excellent, I thought. Yeah, I caught that too when I watched it. And oh. It was a great match. And after the match, after Eddie gets the win, Dean just stands up calmly. Says he wants a rematch, tells Eddie, you know, he got lucky. Eddie tells him any time. They actually shake hands. Good respect there. They both came over from ECW basically at the same time. The Malenko Guerrero Classic, everybody that loved this type of style back then and who didn't. I mean, uh, everybody was grabbing these tapes back then, and I was one of them. I certainly enjoyed their matches uh, in Japan, in the ECW, and here in WCW. But sadly, between the Hogan horse shit backstage and the announcers treating this match as a backdrop to largely sell hogan these guys didn't get what they deserved here for me and uh this would begin the new that new era of wcw though the, the cruiserweight style as you mentioned the lucha style the fast-paced technical stuff just something the national fan base hadn't been exposed to yet uh everything in this match was fun and just imagine when these guys get 20 minutes instead of five i, I can't wait until we start getting to those type of matches when nitro expands and the matches go longer 
Yeah, same here, man. I'm excited for all these cruiserweight matches. I don't even care who's in them. They're still entertaining as hell to me because it was, like you said earlier, you look at this from your eyes from 94, 95. Like, that's what I do when I watch these cruiserweight matches. Yeah, we've seen it all probably a thousand times by now, but I can still watch stuff from 95. And be like, man, that was the first time I've seen that. And it's just incredible, the talent they had. And so we saw him pulling in a limo, and now he's arrived. It's Hulk Hogan out in a neck brace. He's looking for the giant. Promo was like a minute long, so I was a little confused. Because Mean Gene brought him out. Hogan gets in the ring. He starts to cut a promo. A Hogan promo never goes one minute. I don't care when it is or what, it, what it's about. And so I thought that was odd. And he gets down, and he starts walking around ringside slapping fans' hands. And I'm like, he doesn't do that very often either. And I hadn't remembered this, this uh, angle here at all. So it kind of caught me off guard until I actually saw it go down. And uh, Hogan gets powder thrown in his eyes from an old granny fan. And then he's beaten on by this uh, granny fan with a, a, a cane. Jimmy Hart takes a shot from the cane, too. He goes down. Hogan gets beaten on some more with the cane. By then, I'm kind of figuring out who this is. We see Zodiac and Giant running down to ringside. Giant removes Hogan's neck brace. Uh, gives Hogan that Zeus-style neck snap again as the granny shows herself to be Kevin Sullivan in drag. Sullivan then proceeds to shave the mustache off of Hogan. And there was like, there was some noise from the crowd, but there was no real heat. Like there was no riotous heat here. But could you imagine if someone had done this angle in the WWF just a few years earlier, like shaved his mustache off? This would have been a monster angle. Drew money. It would have been a gigantic deal. But here in 95 WCW, it just felt, eh. And that's how I felt when it was happening. I was like, oh my gosh, he's letting them shave his mustache. Versus, oh my God, they're shaving Hogan's mustache. It was a, a big difference to me. Yeah, uh, definitely with you, man. I'm with you. If this happened in WWF, it probably would have been one of the single biggest moneymakers in their history, I think. It probably been right up there with Hogan and Savage and then Hogan and Andre. Um, that would probably been number three outside of it. It'd be better than Slaughter and Earthquake and those guys. Right. But yeah, it, it just felt so flat because the fans don't care about Hogan. Uh, they boo him every time he comes out to the ring. He doesn't get a reaction, usually negative. Right. So they were kind of just sitting on their hands, and they're done with it. It's He didn't fit WCW the way he did in the WWF. Even in 95, with all the cartoons and everything else, and the fan base that they did have, they didn't enjoy it either. So this was nothing. And uh, I think that's kind of why Hogan fades to black here for a month or two is because he's trying to, trying to channel some new fans or bring back some of his old fans with a little edge to his character. But I got to give Hogan props. If there's one thing that he knows how to do, it's to try to make some money. And Hogan's off to go do a movie where it's called for him to, to have no mustache, shave off his mustache. So at least they incorporated it into the storyline here because Hogan knows about doing good business if there's money to be made. And I guess he assumed that that would make some big money having his mustache shaved here. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's a little too late in the run of Hulkamania for it to matter as much. And like, like I said before, it just felt in the WWF, even though it was fake, it felt more realistic here in WCW, everything he's doing, especially because of all this cartoon nonsense that he's going up against everything he's doing. It just feels like I'm watching a, a TV program versus a, an actual wrestling or sporting event. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Our next match was actually scheduled to be a world tag team title match between the American Males, taking on the Nasty Boys, the Challengers. But both teams actually come down to save Hogan from the Giant, and they fail miserably. Choke slams for everyone. Knobs makes sense uh, coming down and saving Hogan, but 
why are all these other guys trying to save the Hulkster? Because he sure doesn't come out to help them whenever they're in trouble. Yeah, it's better than the guys they sent out last time. What was it, Mark Starr and a couple jobbers? <laughs> Alex Wright. Yeah, Alex Wright. So, I mean, at least you send out your tag team champions and the Nasty Boys. At least there's some names, and it makes it look like Hogan has some friends in the back. <laughs> so At least. This next spot, was uh, it was funny to me. It was a little ha-ha. I had never noticed this before. Uh, they finished shaving Hogan's mustache, and Sullivan hands the scissors to the Zodiac and instructs him to, coat, uh, to cut Hogan's hair. And I just thought that I had to get a laugh out of that. Uh, Sullivan handing the Zodiac uh, a pair of scissors to cut Hogan's hair. Uh, Zodiac is uh, reluctant, though, which leads to some stuff here in a few weeks or whatever. But So Hogan gets to keep the hair as the segment finally comes to a close. But did you catch that with Zodiac and the scissors and just kind of teasing, cutting Hogan's hair with them? Yeah, I definitely picked up on that. Sullivan's telling him yes, and he keeps on yelling no. And then he kind of just walks around and leaves. It It didn't really <laughs> go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, it, it just, like, initially, there's, it looks like they're going to try and do something with it. But then, I don't know, Sullivan left and just stopped messing with it or what happened. But then he just, just starts walking around the ring and does nothing. Right. So we move into our main event of the night. It's Ric Flair taking on Arn Anderson. And so Ric Flair has just gotten eye surgery, I think a week, maybe two weeks ago. And he was supposed to be out for a month or he may risk uh, losing sight in one of his eyes. Instead, he's back here after like two weeks because WCW, Eric Bischoff, decided they needed him to pop the rating uh, because of how, how bad they did, poor they did the week before. And how kind of Eric and Kevin Sullivan, who's booking and whoever else made this call to beg Ric Flair to come in and do this because how dangerous was this? But Ric Flair was always a trooper as far as performing. So kudos to Flair for doing this. Not the wisest thing. It's really unnecessary when you have Sting and Hogan and Savage and all these other names on your roster. Do you really need to force Ric Flair back two weeks early? Uh, it sounds like it. I mean, I don't, but I don't, how are they going to say the ratings suck? But Flair was in the main event last week against what Pillman and it did pretty bad, so it, it's not him that's going to pop the rating. If you just look at what you had, I mean, these shows that they did, like that first head, like head-to-head live show, they didn't book it very well at all to even compete with the WWF. It, it seemed like you got to expect to have an ebb and flow, so why are you begging this dude to come back and risking his eye uh, eyesight just to try and pop a rating? Right. Doesn't make, it didn't make sense to me. Some fun spots here in the match. Uh... You can never doubt Ric Flair, man. He's out there giving it his all. He takes a backdrop on the floor. Flair actually comes off the top rope onto the floor on Arn Anderson as well. That was something new. I hadn't really seen a whole lot from Nature Boy in the past. Arn uh, tries a pile driver, and he gets backdropped outside as well. Uh, Rick winds up blocking a DDT by holding the ropes, and Arn takes a bump. Flair goes into the figure four shortly thereafter. He's got Arn locked in the figure four, but here comes Brian Pillman down to ringside, and the bell starts ringing prematurely as Pillman's just standing on the top rope. So they call for the DQ before he even connects with anything. What if he had missed? But anyway, they give Flair the disqualification here in about eight and a half minutes because they presume Pillman's going to come off and land on Flair, which he actually does. But I just I thought it was funny hearing the bell ring before Pillman actually even made contact with Flair. Well, from what I like, that's what Heenan was trying to tell us was that Arn held on until Pillman got in, but Bischoff corrected him and said that no, Arn submitted. So I think that was more of a submission win for Flair. Like he won pretty handedly and then Pillman got there late I don't know what they were going for yeah every result I've seen is disqualification and it seemed like a disqualification to me too I just don't see the point of having Pillman 
interfere at that exact moment if if there wasn't you know if there was supposed to be a finish prior to that. So I'm going with the DQ here. That's what I'm buying. That's what I'm. It's what it's reported. I mean, so. I, I'm, I'm just telling you. That's what Bischoff said on commentary right. was that uh, Arn held on. He, right. Arn didn't hold on, and that he submitted. Bischoff would know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Pillman's starting to get that crazy look in his eyes now. He's like changing his character. Bischoff, I, I noticed, even calls him a psycho here. The Brian Pillman character is certainly shifting uh, that way. If it hasn't already went there completely full-blown yet, it will in the next couple weeks. Next week on Nitro, we learn Nick Bockwinkle has signed a cage match throughout the course of a commercial break. Uh, and next week, that's uh, Flair and Arn Anderson in a rematch inside a cage, I guess, to try to keep Brian Pillman out of the match. Uh, plus Sting versus Shark, Sabu versus Mr. JL making his debut, Road Warrior Hawk making his Nitro debut against Big Bubba, and we're back to four matches it looks like next week. I don't know how well that's going to work out. And it seems like this Arn and Flair booking of back-to-back main events was done in a panic move after the uh, major hit in the ratings last week, but now we got a cage match next week, which is funny because Bischoff already knows in two weeks' time the WWF Raw will have a cage match. So Bischoff is basically throwing this match out, out there to beat WWF Raw to the punch. Yeah, it's just one of those moves that was done. Like, it, like we said, it's the battles within. These are the little things that you don't really know when you're watching unless you're just reading the Observer and keeping up on it throughout the history of the, the war. But uh, these are the little things that they did all the time. It, it, was, <laughs> it was five or six years of them just going at it tooth and nail. Yeah, and uh, this is the kind of thing, and it would take a while, but this is the kind of thing that forced Vince to have to go live every week because when Bischoff could plan in advance, they can, you know, they could screw up Vince pretty good. Taping shows three and four weeks out. I mean, you know, Bischoff can do things like this. I know you've got a cage match in two weeks. That's fine. I'll put one out next week. It doesn't have to make sense. It might be rushed, but, you know, I gave everybody a cage match before you. So good move by Bischoff, I suppose, as far as business goes. They did something different here this week because the matches went a little longer. They, even though there were still only three, they, they seemed to go a little longer. And uh, I felt like all the matches went the right amount of time this week, in my opinion. Also, the card was stacked. A huge angle. Well, it's as big as you're going to get with Hogan in 95 anyway. I mean, when you looked at look, read it on paper, Hulk Hogan gets his mustache shaved. You have to say that's a huge angle. Uh, it's better than most of the cartoony stuff they've been doing anyway. Uh, you get two big name matches. Arn and uh, Flair and, and Savage and Luger. And then Eddie versus Dean Malenko in their first match here in WCW against each other. I even enjoyed the disco cameo, and I know you didn't. Uh, so for me, though, this entire show was solid beginning to end. Even if the quality of the big matches weren't the best, the name value and the stuff they did in between, at least they tried really hard. So WCW's been a, a lackluster the last couple weeks, and I think they recovered here a little bit. Yeah, it wasn't a bad show. Some of the matches didn't live up to the name value, like Luger and Macho. Uh, that was a pretty sloppy, terrible eight minutes of action there. Um, Dean and Eddie was awesome. I just wish the focus was on Dean and Eddie and not everything else that was going on in the WCW. Uh, they kind of used this as a piss break right. <laughs> or a way to hype up other angles, and that's disappointing. Flair and Arn, I mean, two weeks after a pay-per-view, you're giving it away for free. But yeah, all in all, it was a, it was a better show than what they had last week. There's still some issues here. I, I feel like that, that you could still tell they're, they're relatively new at this game. So everybody is. I mean, live TV every week is definitely new. Right. Supposedly here they drew 9,000 fans, but only 3,400 paid. And the Melts blames that 
for the lack of fan enthusiasm throughout the entire program. You might have noticed, like I said, the crowd didn't really respond very loudly to Hogan having his mustache shaved, and they were basically dead during the Eddie and Dean match, except for the the big spots. So uh, Meltzer says the only real fan reaction was for Hogan. In regards to all the the papered fans, he blames the papered fans for only popping for Hogan and nothing else on the entire show. I did notice the fans weren't necessarily as loud as maybe like a a Chicago or uh, some of the other big wrestling cities here, but it is what it is, and I I wish I'd learned about papered tickets back in the day. Uh, Maybe I wouldn't have spent so much money trying to purchase my own. All right. I could have got into WrestleMania 8 for free if I just went down there on the day of the show. That's unfortunate. That's insane to think about these days and what they charge for the (laughs) last row in an arena (laughs) and they get that money. Right. Yeah. What was your favorite segment here? It's got to be uh, Disco Inferno, right? No, (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding. Absolutely not. I think it's the Eddie and Malenko match. Uh, But again, I'm going to harp on it again. It's just the announcers paying it. No mind took away from it a little bit for me. I, I really enjoyed that match. And I even enjoyed it as a kid. I don't. I probably didn't switch the channel when that match was on when I was a kid. So still really good today. Yeah, certainly the best wrestling on the entire show, which says a lot that uh, maybe it's time for some of these guys to move over, let some of these other guys shine, and they really never did do that. I think overall the Hogan angle has to be gigantic, but I agree with you as speaking of fan, and that's what I'm doing here when I announce my favorite segment. It's what has the most impact on me not necessarily what has the most impact on the main population of the fan base or for WCW or for anything like that. So I, I buy that a lot of people would look at the Hogan angle as a big deal, and it was. But uh, for me, just uh, from an enjoyment value, entertainment value, I'll also go Eddie and Dean here. Really good match. They only went five and a half minutes, and they could have done so much more had they been given more time or had better focus and, ha- and a better crowd. Yeah, absolutely. It, it gets better for them, for sure. And we'll move over to the USA Network and WWF Raw for October 2nd. Recorded last week, uh, September 25th. They're still in Grand Rapids at the Grand Center here in Michigan. And right away, we reminded the Smoking Guns are the new WWF Tag Team Champions. They beat Yoko and Owen Hart last week. We get a WrestleMania The Special Report. Did you know that LT beat Bam Bam Bigelow like seven months ago? I still don't know why they're reminding us of this right now. I I don't understand this at all other than trying to Grab a rating for Lawrence Taylor, I suppose, on, on, on network television. Yeah, they're just trying to push their special that they have on Fox. I mean, they're probably just hoping to get a good number, and maybe it led to other things down the road, but I don't, I don't think it went anywhere with them. And so we kick things off with a match in the ring. It's Razor Ramon against the 1-2-3 Kid again, and this time it's they claim it's for the last time. Uh, kid beat Razor two weeks ago unbeknown, with unbeknownst help from Dean Douglas. Then there was the silliness at In Your House where Razor Ramon had Douglas pinned, and the kid comes in for some weird reason, makes a, a three count, uh, which pisses Razor off, and they get into it there. So the kid still wants that respect, even though he's already beat Razor. As the match gets going, Dean Douglas comes out to take some notes. I don't really know what he's taking notes on here, but the kid's okay for the first minute or so of the match, but he winds up missing a spin kick. Razor pins him with a, a fucking clothesline in just two minutes and 54 seconds. And I'm just like, what the hell was that? And I know he's going heel, but how does this make the kid look like anything but complete shit to do a job to a clothesline? Uh, it was a pretty stiff clothesline. I'll give him that. But uh, now the question I had was, like, after the whole angle and gimmick that they do here, I'm with you. Like, what are your thoughts on this? This feels like they're just trying to bury the kid here. Um, yeah. It just didn't I, make any sense to me at even, all. 
the story is okay and it, it makes a little right. sense for what they're trying to do here. Like yeah. he's just not gonna quit. But at the end of the day, jobs out like three or four times here in a short period of time and he just looks like total shit. So I this was it didn't work for what they were trying to go for. Yeah, so Razor beats him with a clothesline, something Razor's never used as a finisher in the in the past and uh, I don't know. I just it didn't look stiff or anything. It just looked like a clothesline. I mean, maybe a little more than average, but it wasn't Bradshaw esque or any, or Stan Hansen esque or anything like that. Kid takes good bumps too, so he made it look as good as he could. But it's not just the clothesline; it's the fact that it was a clothesline and he beat him in under three minutes. That really, um, I'm, I, it really had me scratching my head. So we learned the kid wants a rematch, and he slaps Razor. So for some reason, we just automatically get a rematch. Razor comes right back at him, throws him across the ring with a giant beal, does his abdominal stretch gimmick, slaps the kid around. Uh, he toys with him because the kid keeps slapping him back, and it's pissing Razor off. Uh, then we go into a commercial break. We come out of the break, and the kid tries something there, and Razor winds up powerbombing him, we learn, and, and pins the kid during the commercial break. It's like the kid came off the top rope with a, a, a Rana, and, and Razor had caught him and dropped him down in a power bomb and pinned him again in what would have roughly been something like three minutes. So now Razor's beat the kid twice in three-minute matches, uh, which are basically the equivalent of, of squash matches. So as we come back from the break, they're wrestling again. So this is our third match between the two. And uh, Razor with the back uh, superplex, uh, he teases the Razor's edge but and winds up humiliating the kid by pinning him with a small package, which looked stupid. When he did it at WrestleMania 9 and stupid here, he's just too tall to be doing this move, especially the guy's smaller than him. And uh, Ramon just humiliates the kid here by using the cradle instead of a finisher. And the time of this match went maybe a couple minutes if you count whatever was going on during the break. The kid is slow to his feet, but he finally offers a handshake to Razor after all of this. The kid does a job three times in eight minutes and not even to the Razor's edge. I don't get what they're trying to go for. I don't know if they're trying to go with, you know what, Razor's had enough of this kid. Like, yeah, he's beat him before, but he's finally done toying around with him, and he's going to beat the respect out of him and, and stuff like that. I don't know if that's what they were trying to go for, but whatever they was going for, it, it absolutely did not work. I thought this did way more harm than it did good for the one, two, three kid. I mean, are we supposed to forget? about the last two years of everyone the kid's been in the ring with two weeks ago when he gave Razor, you know, a much better fight than he's giving him here tonight. It's like all of a sudden, kid's incapable of doing anything. Like he went from winning matches and holding his own and with basically everyone, even even Bret Hart, the match they had on Raw, to now he's just randomly out of nowhere incapable of even putting up a fight. You, you can turn heel without looking completely out of, you know, like out of your league. Instead, he gets pinned three times in like eight minutes and if you omit the commercial break, he basically does a job here on an average of like every two minutes. And I get what they're going for here. Like you said, I'm not against the storyline. Makes complete sense. I'm fine with that. Though the execution was absolutely terrible. And, and maybe ahead this match went 20 minutes and Razor beat him two or three times, you know, every six, seven minutes and maybe use the Razor's edge or, or more capable moves than a cradle and a clothesline. It's almost like they were attempting to humiliate him here at all costs. I don't know if there was politics going on. I don't know what the deal was here, but poor execution on a, a decent idea. Yeah, I agree 100% there. I don't know. I don't know what politics would come into it. These guys are boys, so I'm sure they had no problems with what they were doing. I meant the kid in the office, the, the politics is what I was referring to. Like, I don't know if there's contract issues. I don't know if he pissed somebody off. 
you know, so I, I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there. I have no idea. So we move on to Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley out there with Barry Horowitz. We're maybe three months removed from the memorable Horowitz wins match with Skip and again at SummerSlam. So we're two months out from Horowitz's last big win over Skip. Triple H does some wrestling moves early. He takes uh, Horowitz over into a cross arm breaker, which was very out of Triple H style characters. So he hasn't developed into his kick and punch type Triple H yet. We still see him trying to find the character. He's doing a lot more mat based stuff here. Barry gets some hope spots in. He elbows Triple H really stiff to the jaw at one point. Barry does a Thez press, but then hooks the leg with one of his hands. I think that defeats the entire point of a Thez press. You're supposed to be pinning the guy with your legs, but uh, he even tries an abdominal stretch roll. But ultimately, Triple H counters a backdrop into the pedigree, gets the win in five and a half minutes. So an extended squash here, but a big win, or not a big win, but but another win for Triple H. It was a decent little match. I didn't have any issues with it. Uh, Barry was really good at getting those hope spots and making people believe. They They actually did a decent job with, giving him that win out of nowhere. And then they, even though he kept on losing afterwards, outside of a couple wins, they carried it pretty well. I felt like it just makes you wonder who was next to fall victim to like a miraculous win by Barry Horowitz. Yeah. So made those hope spots more believable. Yeah. He had beaten Skip a couple times. He got that win over Hakushi. Uh, I remember when he first beat Skip, I lost my mind. I was a Barry Horowitz supporter going back to the late eighties when he was a job guy. He always stood out. He was a much more co- competent job guy than most uh, on the offense and in and t- and taking bumps. Uh, he always looked a little more like a, a real wrestler than some of the other job guys as well. The the out the gear and the tan and I don't know. He was, he was just always uh, one of my favorite job guys. So when he won there, even though it was odd seeing him in the babyface role because he was typically usually the heel job guy, I was happy. I was excited. It was a huge deal. It ran its course though, and they really had nothing for him. They transformed his character from a guy who's has a lot of heart into some type of a, a nerd, if you will. All of a sudden he has a pocket protector and these glasses and uh, doing the, the Hava Nagila, the Jewish thing. So he's like a Jewish math nerd kind of gimmick. I don't know what was going on there. So Vince is <laughs> like, well, well, we gave you wins, pal. Now you need a gimmick. <laughs> you know, well, that is my gimmick, Vince. No, no, you, it's got to be better than that. <laughs> We'll and then he, coming up here, he starts teaching uh, Hakushi some English and, yeah, and that, things and like that. Yeah, that was the end of Hakushi. So. Well, you're getting over, pal, so <laughs> we got to give you a gimmick now. Unfortunate. Uh, yeah, very unfortunate for, for both guys, specifically Hakushi, but even poor, poor Horowitz, who probably had a little more in the tank had they used him better than they did. Eh, it, it is what it is. And a good fight, a good match there, Triple H and Barry Horowitz. Yeah, definitely. We head into commercial, and if you call the 900 number not tonight, you can vote if you think O.J. Simpson is guilty or not. Of course, O.J. and the murders, uh, the guilty verdict was going to be announced the next night or the next day in court. So they took this liberty to create a 900 line just for tonight. You call and vote yes or no is O.J. guilty, which I thought in and of itself, they would never get away with that today. But it's apparently, supposedly, if you called and voted, all the money went to proceeds to some type of children's organization, which I don't even believe they okayed with the organization who actually came back and kicked on it when they wound up doing that, uh, incorporating them into this whole this vote scam, which I, I believe it was a scam. I, I don't believe they were tallying votes over the course of one hour, and then they came up with the result at the end of the night, which we'll get to at the end of the night. But I thought this was tacky. It was shameless. 
Uh, obviously, they had a bunch of backlash, even from the charity organization they were trying to donate the money to. And, and this was there, there was murders involved here. And they're treating this as like almost kind of a comedy. Maybe it was haha comedy, but just, just throwing it away like it was uh, of no real significance. Yeah, I mean, it was the talk of the country and the world at the time. So they were just trying to piggyback off of all that. I didn't really read up on the observers this go around. But that's interesting that the charity was a, was a hoax too, pretty much. It seems like just shameless way to steal money from people. So we get back to the ring and, and I hear men on a mission's baby face theme. And for a moment, I forgot they had changed their theme. So I'm thinking Mo and Mabel headed to the ring, but no, it's the P to the G plus the one and the three. Spitting out the lyrics, J.C. Ice and Wolfie D. It's PG-13, the USWA Tag Team Champions. They're announced as being from The Hood. PG-13 out to the ring to take on Sonny Rogers and Al Brown. Danny Davis is the referee here. Danny's still hanging out here in 1995. Vince, uh, I put down on my notes here, Vince has no idea who is who. He has to ask Lawler like 10 times during the... I've never seen him confuse two guys more than he does J.C. Ice and Wolfie D here. He has to ask Lawler repeatedly throughout the match, which guy's in the ring? And, of course, J.C. Ice is son of superstar Bill Dundee, and he's always been quite a character. Uh, I wouldn't trust that guy as far as I could throw him. And based on his size, at least back then, I could throw him pretty far. I remember him as uh, J.C. the Ice Baby, a young, maybe a teenager, a manager uh, down in USWA Dallas. He was kind of a knockoff of J- uh, Vanilla Ice, J.C. Ice Baby. And he kind of did the same gimmick, the haircut and the silly stuff in the hair and everything like that. But So we, get, we see the guys out here. They do an atomic drop into a heart attack on Rodgers. So they're trying some double team moves here. Uh, not, not that they couldn't. They, they've been a team for quite a long time. Wolfie uh, hits a bulldog from the middle rope on Brown. Uh, Wolfie, they do a cool little move here. Wolfie does a tilt-a-whirl on J.C. Ice, and it turns into a splash from Ice on Brown for the win. Match goes about 3 minutes, 43 seconds. They team forever. They were like former 100-time USWA Tag Team Champions. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny how they dressed. When you watched it on USWA, you didn't question it. It wasn't out of place. You understood the gimmick and where they were coming from, from the hood. And it really didn't stick out like it was out of place or over the top. But here, when, when you see them coming down the aisle in the WWF, it's a whole nother story. But uh, what'd you think of PG-13 just randomly out of nowhere showing up on WF Rock? I marked out because I, I had followed him in After Mags for years. I knew J.C. Ice from before that, and I had gotten USWA on my TV for like the last year and a half or so before this. So I was very, very well educated on PG-13. Yeah, I enjoyed him. I, I even liked him when they was in the Nation of Domination later on down the line. They were entertaining. They, they worked so fast. Uh, and they they kind of stuck out, not in a bad way, compared to some of these guys in the WWF. Yeah. Um, just the way they worked, they, like I said, they were they were super smooth. Uh, the moves were down pat. They could move around in the ring. They flew around the ring really good. Like they were super fast, and like I said, they stuck out. I was entertained for the couple minutes, but I did. I kind of have a similar notes to you. Vince has no idea which one is which, and the uh, tilt of war splash for the pin was uh, really cool looking. I, I liked it. Yeah, it was different. You, you really haven't seen it since then either, so surprised more people haven't incorporated something like that into the, their repertoire. But may, maybe they will now if they're listening to us. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I have no idea where Barry Dedinsky is this week, but Doc Hendricks is out there selling some shit, and we'll move into our next match. It's Bret Hart taking on Jean-Pierre Lafitte, the Pirates. This is a rematch from In Your House. Their In Your House match was phenomenal, and but this is a rematch yes. here. 
good wrestling again. Lafitte controls a lot. Brett does, uh, he does slam Lafitte into the steel steps, which look kind of rough. And later on, uh, Lafitte whips Brett into the same steps as well. So these guys are taking a licking and they keep on ticking. Brett goes into his five moves of doom, literally hits every freaking one of them this week. Lawler is, seems heavily invested in this match on commentary, like even more so than usual anti-Brett Hart. Uh, Lafitte hits the rolling Samoan drop on Brett. He goes up for the cannonball, but Brett climbs up after him. Nails the top rope superplex. We eventually get the sharpshooter. Match goes 12 minutes and 10 seconds with no commercials. So with commercials, you figure 14, 15 minutes. I don't think this is as good as their in-your-house match, but still a great match for TV and plenty enough time, too, for TV. Yeah, I really enjoy these matches. These guys could work really good together. Like you said, they was laying it in pretty thick. It looked, it looked real. It looked believable. And it seemed like Brett was having a lot of fun working with, with Lafitte. It didn't last very long, a couple matches, but it's different, it's different man. I, I enjoyed it. You don't think Jean-Pierre Lafitte is going to have a really good match or something memorable, but he had one of the best in-your-house matches uh, with Brett, and then this match was just as good. Uh, they didn't have enough time. They didn't have the same amount of time, I should say, but it, it, it was really good. I enjoyed this match a lot. Yeah, it was kind of cool when Brett wasn't doing the, the world title scene that he was working all these basically mini feuds with all these guys, giving them a chance to shine with, with him in the ring and really just putting on some good matches. Like I said, Hakushi Lafitte. Unfortunately, Isaac Yankum doesn't fall into that category, but he does fall into the category of these feuds that I mentioned in between the world title runs. So win or lose, this does nothing but help Lafitte look like a, a top caliber opponent. Unfortunately, at the same time as this is going on, there's issues in Montreal with the click and Lafitte and Diesel not wanting to do business with Lafitte up there in Montreal. So uh, that kind of hinders him, and he'll probably be out the door here, I believe, probably by the end of the year. Meanwhile, back at ringside, uh, Lawler calls Brett out. Brett's trying to leave ringside after beating Lafitte, and Lawler calls him out. Lawler takes his jacket off, stands up on the, the announce table, calls Brett back to him. Here comes Brett right back to him. They get into a, a conversation back and forth, and Isaac Yankum attacks from behind, lands the DDT or the DDS on the floor on Bret Hart. Uh, we go into commercial break. They come back, and just like Nitro, go into a commercial break, come back, and a steel cage match is magically announced in two weeks' time. So it only takes two minutes in both WCW and WWF to book rematches inside a steel cage. What do you know, though? A coincidence? We, we've got a cage match on Nitro, a cage match on Raw. Not in the same week, but, you know, like I said, Bischoff, rather than putting his cage match up against Vince's, He's, he goes one step further. He, he really nails him with a punch there, and he puts his on a week before. So by the time Vince does it, it looks like they're copying off of WCW, even though it's really WCW who's copying off of Vince. Really clever stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty smart. Bischoff was, uh, he was ruthless. Um, he was just as ruthless as Vince in, in a lot of aspects. And these little things like I discussed earlier, once you, if you lay them all out, I mean, it was Bischoff who did all this, really. It was him who started most of it. And Vince kind of just lucked into some top-flight talent that he didn't have prior to this starting. But um, we'll discuss that long time down the road. But uh, Bischoff was ruthless and cutthroat and uh, definitely making shaking things up here. Uh, just good stuff. Yeah. And then we get some quick promos uh, from Camp Cornette. That's Yoko, Owen, Davey Boy Smith. They'll be taking on next week Diesel, Shawn Michaels, and The Undertaker in six-man tag team action. So we get two quick promos here, one promo from Camp Cornette and one promo from Diesel, Shawn, and Undertaker. Kind of cool seeing all three of those baby faces standing together, but also didn't really fit at the same time, seeing The Undertaker standing there with 
with Diesel and Sean. I mean, Undertaker didn't fit with many people yeah, <laughs> when it comes true. to that. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's I get a lot of match um, that were inserted into the program, and some of the ones I've had from this time frame have Undertaker, Sean, and Diesel and Brett on the same team against some other guys, and it's just like wow. Uh, just look at the lineup and the list and the matches that they had. That uh, looking back, then you didn't really think anything of it. It was just you. You was living in the times, and I mean, obviously, you know who's going to be a legend, who isn't. You can you can pick up on that. But now looking back on it, it's just insane the amount yeah. of talent both uh, guys had. Right. And uh, as we close the show, the OJ verdict is in. Forty nine percent believe he's guilty. Fifty one percent believe he's not. Uh, they make sure not to go 50-50 to really piss the fans off who actually called, any idiots that actually called and paid them money for this fake vote. But yeah, so uh, they made sure not to go 50-50, but they, they don't want to insult your intelligence. So 51% say no. What a sham. One of the biggest shams in, uh, that I've recalled in WF history as far as just trying to steal a couple bucks from the people. Yeah, I never called those numbers. and I've no. seen them for what they were. So, uh, yeah, just stupid. It's so 1990s, 1995. Uh, it just, it's bad. Well, I and think, I think what people, no, no, definitely not. But, oh God, mean Gene on a weekly basis there at some, uh, you know, many a times, but I just, I think it's really bad taste. You're talking about people that were murdered. This isn't like, uh, yeah. did OJ, did, o, you know, if it had been when OJ robbed, you know, got his stuff back and then robbed whoever to get his old, uh, memorabilia back. A little bit of a different story. Did OJ, you know, should he be, you know, whatever? I mean, that's a little more of a ha-ha thing. It's silly. He did that to himself. But when there's actual murders involved, I just don't know that it should be taking part in a 900 line, you know, grabbing a couple bucks for people to vote what they think. Just seems really, really out of place in any era. Absolutely. I agree with you there. And if you noticed a, a change in the booking here for the better in the last couple of weeks, it's because Bill Watts has been given the book here by Vince. Vince basically told Bill Watts he'd be in charge after the WWF is coming off its uh, most stale run in company history here over the course of 1995. Well, most stale run in company history, at least in, until 2020. Uh, and that's why there's uh, more angles, more personal conflict here. I really like the change in some of the dynamics of the, of the feuds and Everything's being more personal. There's still a whole lot of uh, kinks to work out, but Cowboy gets going pretty decent here, and it's too bad for his stay will be a short-lived one once he finds out that complete creative control doesn't really mean complete creative control as long as Vince McMahon's around, uh, and that's unfortunate too. Well, duh. <laughs> I think I thought everybody knew that by now. <laughs> well, we'll see how long the Cowboy <laughs> sticks around. <laughs> it ain't too long. Uh, what's your favorite segment here on Raw? Was it the O.J. Simpson 900 line or? Uh, no, it, it was the Brett <laughs> Lafitte match and, and the post-match angle with Brett and Lawler and Isaac Yankum. Really not yeah. a lot going on in this show. Uh, the kid got buried. Hunter and Horror, which is good. It was nice to see PG-13. And then Bret Hart and Lafitte were awesome. So, Yeah, if Brett Lafitte, yeah, if Brett and Lafitte hadn't had a, a quality match like they did, I probably would have just went with PG-13 just because it was so out of nowhere. And I remember at that time marking out like, oh, my God, USWA guys are on Raw. They're being called the USWA Tag Team Champions. Vince didn't acknowledge things like that back then so much. I remember Smoky Mountain Wrestling when the Rock and Rolls and uh, Heavenly Bodies came in for a little bit there against each other. But other than that, you never got anything like this. So I thought that was cool. But, yeah, Brett and Lafitte, did, hands down, not only are they – Brett, a top star in the WWF, and Lafitte, 
a, a solid worker. The, the match was just really good. And I can't even put Razor and Kid in the running because I like the story they wanted to tell, but the way they told it, it was terrible. So I can't even put them in the running. And PG-13, it was fun, but yeah, I agree with you 100%. Brett versus Lafitte, the best thing on the show, no doubt about it. And the ratings are in. Monday Nitro wins with a 2.5 and a 3.7 share. No, wait. Raw does a 2.5, and we have tied rating. Nitro does 2.5. Raw does 2.5. However, Nitro gets a slight win in the share department because their share winds up being a little low, a little more, 3.7% of the, of the people watching TV, while Raw gets a 3.5 share. But uh, technically, rating-wise, Nitro and Raw tie this week. So slight win for WCW, but really a tie. And after the four weeks of head-to-head matchups, WCW has two wins. One tie and one loss in the ratings, which is a hell of a lot better than even the most optimistic WCW people would have probably predicted going in. The the shares, however, have been more identical. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. They they always that's the thing, like most people don't even know, and I've I've seen Meltzer talk about this quite a bit, that back then WCW actually destroyed WWF and like primetime, not primetime, but network television. So like TBS always had a better rating than whatever Vince was doing on the USA network. So they had fan base. It wasn't like they were just, you know, we're going to go on Nitro and on Mondays and hopefully we do well. It wasn't necessarily like that. It was, they had a base. They did really well. Really what killed them was syndication. Vince always did pretty well in syndication, but overall ratings for all the wrestling, like Vince or WCW led, majority of the time on that and um so they had something they're just capitalizing on it on a night that everybody knows is wrestling night and uh, the thing that sticks out to me the most here is the fact that each of them essentially got what a three and a half to 3.7 share of right. the network so yeah seven seven percent of the share whoever was watching tv that night was watching wrestling so that that's the part that is is intriguing to me is that there's basically two fan bases and they're both watching what they want to watch. Yeah, and this is during football season too, so it's uh, you know it says a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And all right, Steve. So we basically have a tie here in the ratings. So uh, Nitro slightly the favorite in the share, but in the ratings we basically have a tie. So who's your pick? Is it is it Nitro with the Hogan mustache angle and? Eddie versus Dean and, and the two big big name matches that we had on that show, or is it Raw, which had Razor and the Kid, PG-13 making a surprise debut here, Bret Hart and Lafitte in that really solid match. Who's your winner here and why? Uh, I think I'm going to go with Monday Night Raw. I think initially I had Nitro down just because of the angle and then the matches. You know, you had Macho and Luger, Arn and Flair. So some pretty big names, a pretty big angle. But the more I look at it, um, I think the Raw show is more entertaining to me. Bret Hart and Pierre, Jean-Pierre Lafitte was probably the best wrestling on Monday that week. And I, I'm a big fan of Bret Hart. So uh, I enjoyed that match back then, probably just as much as I do now. I just felt overall this show was better. I, when I first watched the Ramon Kid stuff, I, I remember watching that. And I was kind of glued to that because I was like, what the heck are they doing? The kids just getting destroyed here. It didn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense now, but I remember being intrigued by what they were doing there, and we know what it leads to. I'm going to go with Raw on this one. Yeah, and I'm going to go with Raw, too. Yeah, and and I'm going to go with Raw, too, for similar reasons. And on paper, when I looked at the two lineups, I thought for sure Monday Nitro was going to win hands down just based on the lineup. 
However, at the end of the day, between PG-13 kind of popping up and having a fun little match, but just the surprise value, Triple H and Horowitz have a nice little solid squash match, but it's Brett and Lafitte, really, at the end of the day. It's just, which show gave me the better overall product? And while Eddie and Dean was awesome, it was five and a half minutes. Bret Hart got like, you know, close to 15 here with, to work with Lafitte. And uh, that's really not fair to Eddie and Dean, because had they got 15, I'm sure they would have blew even Brett and, and Lafitte out of the water, probably. Oh, but, yeah, absolutely. But, but uh, it is what it is, and I have to go with Raw here simply because there was a really good, solid wrestling match, believe it or not, on Monday Night Raw. And that's why Raw gets the win for me. And we move on to the next week, back to Nitro, October 9th, 1995. They're in Chicago, or outside of Chicago, at the Rosemont Horizon. We've got 8,500 fans there, 4,500 paid, still better than Denver. Not great, but a lot better than Denver. We relived last week when Hogan had his neck snapped again by the giant and then his mustache shaved, brother. Mongo, Bischoff, Heenan, all in Chicago Bears uniforms because we're in Chicago and Mongo being a former Bears player. Sting randomly pops up this week, and he's, he's popping up behind him like Flair did last week, so you're right, it does happen again right away. Sting's excited. Uh, he claims he's going to resolve the issues between Savage and Luger later here tonight, so that's a bold prophecy considering that... Uh, those two guys really don't like each other, and Savage is, like, paranoid beyond paranoia. So uh, Sting makes a pretty bold prophecy here to begin the show that he knows how to resolve the issues between Lex and, and Savage. So we'll see how that plays out as we go into this show. Yeah, it's, it's weird. They showed up when they came on. Uh, their back was to everybody because they were showing off their Bears jerseys there, and I thought that was pretty cool. Mongo had to hook up. But, yeah, Sting came out. I'm interested to see what his uh, his prophecy is going to lay in front of us. What it's going to what it's going to turn into. So we start off the show with uh, well, we start off the the action in the ring with shark in the ring, and oh, I I I remembered the gimmick, but I didn't remember how stupid it looked until right here. I mean, even though we saw him a few weeks ago, I, it really shined here to me. His gear. Is absolutely ridiculous. It's just busy, random pictures of things all over this big fat singlet, and then he has the shark teeth drawn on the sides of his cheeks. Uh, I'm pretty sure dude didn't quit the WWF to sign up for shit like this. I felt so bad for Earthquake here. Yeah, uh, I did too. I mean, he everything you hear, he was a really, really good guy, and he's clearly doing what's asked of him uh, without really giving much. But at this time point, he's probably getting paid pretty nice to do dumb shit so he's probably like whatever but yeah it's unfortunate this poor guy what was the avalanche shark john tenta i mean he's everything a little bit of everything i feel like i always felt like he deserved better i agree it's 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 a long way from earthquake not just the hogan feud but even like post-disaster feud in 94 the the run he started to have there in 94 uh he was over as a singles baby face it's just unfortunate here that this is what ends up happening to John Tenta for basically the remainder of his career because he doesn't get any better than this as he goes on to become Golga in the WWF. I don't know, man. We'll talk. I'm sure we'll talk about that more when it happens, but <laughs> South Park was over, and I think a lot of people did like Golga. I know I did. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyways. We, the cameraman, I don't know if it's Jackie Crockett or whoever's running the camera here, they literally have no idea where Sting is, even though he was just at the podium at the at the beginning of the show. So the cameraman's focused on the entrance ramp, and Sting's not even coming out because he's already out. And Sting kind of pops up in front of the cameraman, and he says, uh, 
I, you know, I snuck up on you or whatever. Just what an idiot this camera guy is. I thought it was funny. But uh, Sting gets in the ring. The shark, the shark. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm saying shit like this. Shark jumps Sting. Uh, he misses a splash in the corner. So Sting delivers the Stinger splash to the back of Shark. I, I, I hate calling him Shark. Just ridiculous. Just call him Tenta. <laughs> so, anyway, Sting with the big Stinger splash in the corner to the back of Tenta. Uh, Sting goes up top, wins with the top rope, cross body block. Match goes a minute and 17 seconds. Nothing match. Uh, can you believe once upon a time John Tenta was freaking Earthquake and now he's a fucking aquatic fish doing one-minute jobs? Yeah, it's like Sting gave him all his offense and uh, they went to the finish. Um, they probably got a lot to do. Like you mentioned last week that they're going back to four matches and you can see what happens when they do that with the one-hour, you know, about 45-minute show with the commercials and stuff. So um, right. you can clearly tell what they got to do when they have four ma- four matches. Right, and so they give Sting and Tenta one minute and 17 seconds in order to replay the damn near the entire segment of Hogan last week and the Sullivan and Giant attack and the mustache being shaved, and I get wanting to replay an angle that hot, but again, this was a case of chopping it up into clips instead of playing big long periods of the segment, and that's what they do here, and it eats up time on the show that could have been went, that could have went to Sting and Tenta or went to some of these other matches here on the show, so I don't like some of their highlight packages here. They come off lazy. They, they show more parts of the segment than they absolutely is necessary. When you only have an hour to work with, you should be uh, maintaining maybe 60-second clips or, or putting a time limit on your clip rather than just, oh, well, just show it and we'll cut everything else down to see, make sure it fits in there. Yeah, they haven't mastered the, the highlight reel just <laughs> yet. Uh, I don't think either either side really has. They basically showed Sullivan attacking him with powder, and then they showed the whole everything in the ring that happened right afterwards. Like basically, what they're saying is that we know you guys didn't watch this last week, so we're just going to play the whole damn thing again for you. Yeah, it just ate up so much time here. It was an easy fast forward for me. We go into our next match. It's Sabu returning. We haven't seen him since week two. This week, he's taking on the debut of Mister JL, and I said it way back then, and I'll say it again now. What a stupid name. How uncreative do you have to be to take a guy named Jerry Lynn and then <laughs> stick him in a mask and call him Mr. JL, his initials? Like, you couldn't have given him any other name on the face of the earth other than Mr. JL. Yeah, I know Joey Styles has a blast with this and ECW trashing Bischoff and company for the name that they gave JL. He's a hell of a talent. He deserved way better than this. Interesting, if you pay attention here, they go to a fan ringside when um, I think JL was coming down. I'm, I'm like 99.9% sure it's Justin Roberts. I know he's from Chicago, and they cut to him, and he has a really big smile on his face, and he's happy to be there. So The future um, ring announcer? Yeah, the future ring announcer of WWE and AEW. He's definitely there right well, when what? JL comes to the ring, and they do a camera cut to him. Well, we'll have to put that up on our Monday Warfare Twitter account and uh... – Maybe tag Justin Roberts and see if he wants to take claim for that or not. But yeah, so as the match gets going, I had no clue at the time, and I was big on trying to figure out who everyone was and, and under a hood or under paint or things like that. And I had no idea who Mr. JL was as the match gets going. It probably took a few months until the after Max caught up to whatever was happening on WCW. And uh, I found out that way. Or maybe, you know, I did have AOL by 1990. Well, it's 95. I think I, I we, we already had it by then. I'm not sure if I got the news on there or not, but 
I remember it took a few months and I read maybe read somewhere in an after mag that JL was Jerry Lynn made sense to me. I knew Jerry Lynn from Dallas where he'd worked the one, two, three kid who went on to be, uh, who was lightning kid back then. And they had some really <laughs> great matches. The two out of three fall match there in the sportatorium in Dallas and global, uh, was, uh, legendary to me at the time. They did things that I hadn't seen in the you know United States. So it was a big deal. I was really cool. I was really happy. Jerry Lynn's getting a match here. Cause I hadn't heard from him since then. Match starts with Sabu attacking. Skid starts getting in all of his big spots. Somersault, leg drop, springboard, leg lariat. Uh, Bischoff calls an Enzigiri a back leg round kick. Uh, I think I prefer what a maneuver over back leg round kick. Uh, and I just can't believe he called an Enzigiri. And I'm not saying he had to call it an Enzigiri because I don't think they were calling it that yet on, uh, in the, uh, the American promotions. But th- there was no back leg round kick involved or whatever the hell that's supposed to be. So just more stupid Bischoff nonsense and people give vince uh shit but what a maneuver sounds way better than making up names for moves absolutely i i'd rather hear what a maneuver because at least with that you're putting it over vince is has no idea what the hell it is so he just says you know what a maneuver and i i get it i know i think it was a couple episodes ago where he th- somebody threw a punch or a kick yeah. and he said what a maneuver but <laughs> yeah. uh at the end of the day at, at, at least He's putting this shit over, and he doesn't know a name. He's not going to come up with something. I think Bischoff, when it comes to the kicks and, and things like that, he's going into his kickboxing repertoire, and he's trying to make himself sound intelligent or actually know what he's talking about. And it just, he just comes across as an arrogant asshole to, to a degree. Yeah. I won't argue that. JL comes back, though. He nails a nice suicide dive. Sabu retaliates with a somersault plancha to the floor, so they're both doing dives. Outside, Sabu does a springboard off a chair into a leg lariat against the railing on JL, Arabian press, and a camel clutch, but they're by the ropes. So Mongo, I love Mongo's astute. He's a, he's a real student of the game now because as Sabu has JL in the camel clutch, Mongo says, this is a submission hold, like he's telling them something they didn't know. Uh, he was teaching them. So I just I thought that was funny listening to Mongo and his lovely sound bites. Mongo, man, he's bagging on like NFL players and oh this is an NFL guy he'd be out he these guys are still going week after week and all that and I'm just like he's trashing well, the career that made him a name well he's he's moving on is what he's trying to do he's trying to get WCW over same way he trashes the WWF in the same sense I get that he didn't really play for the WWF he played for the NFL so I I do understand where you're coming from and I'm not even defending him when I say this but I understand what he's doing. I think it's stupid that he's doing it, but he's basically, he's moved on. He's moved, changed careers. And this is his new career. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's looking to get in the ring eventually here. So he knows that he needs to put this over as a big deal so that it's a big deal when he gets in the ring. Jerry Lynn retaliates, comes back on Sabu, delivers a elevated DDT uh, from the top rope. Sabu comes back with a top rope, Hurricane Rana. Uh, JL blocks that. JL tries his own flying Rana. Sabu catches him, turns into a powerbomb. Kind of like the one, two, three kid razor spot uh, where the kid came off with the Rana and got caught and put in a powerbomb. But here, Lin comes flying off the Rana and Sabu catches him into a powerbomb. Goes right into the camel clutch. This time gets the win in about four and a half minutes. And for absolutely no reason other than because he's Sabu, he decides to hit a sunset flip powerbomb to the floor on JL to end the match. Or actually, the match is already over. Just to, just to close out the segment. Uh, I thought this was wild and awesome. A lot of great wrestling here. Yeah, this is a fun match. Just a lot of different, unique, awesome offense that you wasn't really seeing. 
it sticks out. Even watching back on it now, it sticks out. It, it's it's really good stuff. And Sabu is just so far ahead of his time. Just a tremendous talent. And uh, much like they kind of overshadowed the Dean and Eddie match last week, there they cut away from Sabu and JL as fast as they can because they're too busy trying to put other things over. But you can actually hear the fight continue and the crowd all riled up in the back. Uh, back, back of Bischoff and company as they're trying to talk about, you know, a bunch of other nonsense with the giant and Hogan and shit like that. You can actually hear the crowd still popping and making noise for whatever the hell's going on between Sabu and Jerry Lynn at ringside. And not one wasted second or move in this match. No real selling, though. Just let's let's get everything in that we can get in with the time that we got. Like I said, match only goes four and a half minutes, but you wouldn't know that based on all the moves they got in. And while I'm not a giant fan of that style, that no-selling style, I loved it here, and I liked that they're trying to get themselves over uh, with the time that they have. Yeah, uh, you got to do what you got to do. And they know like they're not really the primary focus. They know they're probably not going to get a lot on commentary to get themselves over or get help getting over. Uh, so they're just going to go out there and do as many crazy-ass moves as you can think of, do crazy stuff that sticks out and makes it memorable. I'm going to do everything I can to get myself over to where they have to pay attention. And the show started with Sting promising to resolve the issues between Luger and Savage here tonight. And he doesn't really quite accomplish that because we have Sting and Luger in the ring for promo time. Luger's in a suit, so he's not working tonight. Not that he works a lot when he's in gear either. That's debatable. Uh, but Sting calls out Macho Man because he needs them both out there in order to saw, uh, squash the heat here. Uh, Savage comes into the ring. He wants to know why the giant chokeslam Hogan, the giant chokeslam Lex, uh, the giant chokeslam Savage, but the giant did not chokeslam Sting last week. Sting says Macho's insecure and paranoid, and wow, if that's not a shoot, I don't know what is. Uh, <laughs> Sting actually tells Savage to shut up. He warns Savage not to slap him. Uh, Savage gets a little hostile, but he maintains his ground. Sting comes up with this idea because Sting's now the booker. He's now the matchmaker. Uh, Savage is scheduled to wrestle Kamala at Halloween Havoc, which doesn't actually happen. But as of right now, Savage uh, is scheduled to wrestle Kamala. Luger's scheduled to wrestle Ming in a rematch from when Ming beat Luger on Nitro. So Sting says if Savage beats Kamala and Luger beats Ming at Halloween Havoc, they should fight each other later in the pay-per-view. My first question is, how does this fix the issue by having them fight? The whole idea of Sting's going to settle this by making them into to buddies is basically the way that Sting originally sold this, and now he's going to have them fight each other. It's just, that didn't make any sense to me. But what else, another thing that didn't make sense to me is, why do they need to win their matches with Kamala and Ming in order to fight each other? If their issue has nothing to do with these other matches, this is not a tournament for a championship. I, I, I just didn't, right. I didn't understand any of this. But I, it's not Sting's fault. This is shit they fed him to say. So I'm not blaming Sting for this, but the the idea behind it's just absolutely stupid. Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. I, the only thing I can think of is that they want to maybe Savage and Luger don't respect each other. It doesn't really answer the question on who's coming from which side, like which angle are they playing and things like that. You're not going to get that answer by having them fight each other. But you, you can maybe you know what, you beat this guy, these matches are already booked, so you can't just say, you know what, we're going to scrap those matches and you two are going to fight. So since they already announced those matches, I'm sure probably on Saturday night or something, I don't know. Since they're doing that, then I can see where this makes sense. You know what, we're going to make these matches mean a little bit more. If you win, you get to fight each other. So let's see how uh, see how hard you work to get to each other. But yeah, that's giving them too much credit. Uh, I'm I'm leaning more towards what you're saying. This is just stupid. But I will say, Sting did a tremendous job here. Yeah, and Sting's not the greatest promo, but he does a really good job here. It's like, 
when he knows he's got to get from point A to point B, he can get that point across. When you go out there and just tell him to cut a promo all willy-nilly, that's when Sting starts making no sense. And so he does a good job here because he's almost like he's handling a debate rather than cutting a promo for himself. And I think that's what really uh, helps him here because after he announces this idea, Randy Savage is gung-ho. He's all for this. But Lex Luger, being Lex Luger, he's upset with Sting. He tells Sting that Sting put words in his mouth because, A, Lex Luger doesn't want to wrestle twice, both the character and the real guy. I mean, are you kidding me? I got to wrestle twice. And, B, I don't want to see Lex Luger wrestle twice. So I'm on Luger's (laughs) side here. I don't want to see this match. But Sting basically calls Lex a whiny bitch. Uh, in a friendly way, and says he's he's not talking to the total package anymore. He's not the same Lex Luger that Sting once knew. Luger gets pissed off. He cuts Sting off and says he is still the total package, and he agrees to the potential match with Savage at Halloween Havoc, and that's basically how we close out this segment. Yeah, I really liked it. Like you mentioned, the shoot when he said he was paranoid and insecure. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't lying there. He says Luger's pathetic and that he's been sticking up for Luger left and right. Again, he's not lying there because Sting's the reason Luger's even in the WCW. And, and he isn't the same total package either. <laughs> yeah, so this was like almost a shoot interview. It felt really real and authentic because I mean, everybody knows how Macho Man is uh, now anyway. Maybe in 95 you didn't really. But I, I like how they're kind of blurring the line a little bit and what's real and what's uh, set up. I know it's a setup, but there's a lot of truth being said here. And I'm sure when it comes to Luger, Sting probably is tired of having to stick up for him and go to bat for him all the time. And we've seen the match you have with Macho. Maybe he had some heat on him for how terrible that turned out. Maybe he doesn't want to do business, like you said. Maybe he doesn't really want to wrestle twice, and he's causing issues. And Sting's like, you know what, just give him a break. Maybe he is going to bat for him numerous times since he's been in. So um, really cool. Uh, 95, I wasn't picking up on that stuff. But now seeing it, I really enjoyed this segment here between these three. Yeah, Sting, Sting did awesome. Sting really made it, which is uh, crazy to think about. Uh, normally it would be Savage, you would think, would uh, be the glue of this promo here, but it was definitely all Sting, and a good job by Sting. We're going to move on now, and uh, we're entering Chris Benoit territory here in WCW, so I'm going to issue this disclaimer right now in regards to Chris Benoit and all future Monday Warfare podcasts. If anybody has any questions, I will revert them back to this episode, episode three of Monday Warfare, and listen to this disclaimer. I don't have anything written down. I don't have any notes to read. So this is just going to come from my mind, from my heart. I do not condone anything that took place in regards to the entire situation, which I'm not going to discuss here. I don't know the man. I didn't know the man. I'm not going to make any excuses for the man. I don't care for the entire situation. I'm not somebody who can put that aside completely and look at his body of work as I once did. I know some others can. I know some others feel he should be in the Hall of Fame and uh, forget all the things that, that happened. And not, like I said, I'm not going to get any further into that. I can't do that. I'm not going to take anything away from a guy. If somebody hits a, a thousand home runs and then they go do something that they shouldn't do or, or worse, they still hit a thousand home runs. I'm not condoning that. And I'm not saying that that is makes it okay because there's no, no way I can't, I, there's unjustifiable. But I can only say that he certainly had many of really entertaining matches that probably likely no longer entertain me anymore from a fan value. But I I certainly can't discredit some of the uh, work, the body of work in the ring. So uh, from this point forward, as he appears on these shows, I will continue to call all of his matches, his promos, uh, everything as I see them. However, I, uh, I won't be able to enjoy them at the level as maybe some other people can. But I will not be biased in regards to just crapping all over everything. 
I'll just call it as I see it. If it was a good match, I'm just going to say good match. I may not deep dive into my feelings on the match as much as I would otherwise. Other than that, that's really all I have to say about that, Steve. And uh, if you have anything else to add, feel free. Yeah, I'm with you when it comes to things. I have a hard time separating the wrestler from the man because at the end of the day, Chris Benoit is Chris Benoit. You got to take the total package. My whole, like his whole career to me was being emotionally invested uh, because he was great at doing that. He was great at drawing you in and making you believe and buying into the story of he had to scratch and claw for everything that he was given or earned. And based off of what he did in his last couple of days, it, it's almost impossible for me to do that. So uh, I'll, I'll be, I'm not going to be biased. I'm not going to crap on it just because it's Chris Benoit. It's just going to be one of those things that I've done reviews. They're on the internet. When it comes to Chris Benoit, it's like, you know what? It is what it is. Let's move on. If he has a great match, he has a great match. But at the end of the day, I, I can't separate the man from what he did and just enjoy his work as a wrestler. So probably not going to be too many long conversations when it comes to Chris Benoit on this show, but I'm okay with that. And Chris Benoit makes his first appearance here in quite a while. He had appeared popped up before 92, 93 WCW. He's back here in a vignette. We see a limo pull up uh, to the arena or some, some building somewhere. I don't know if it's <laughs> where, where, where exactly it pulled up, but I see a limo pull up and a guy step out in a suit and it's Chris Benoit. And if that was everything that didn't match Chris Benoit, it was like they were trying to still figure out <laughs> what they had in Chris Benoit or what they were going to do with him because Chris Benoit pulling up in a limo in a suit, just it didn't match Chris Benoit. And I don't know that we ever see this ever again, except for maybe when he's in the horseman. So. Just seemed like a weird, weird introduction to Chris Benoit here, but he steps out of the limo and he kind of looks at the building and he just says, this is WCW where the big boys play. Yeah, it almost makes you, they did it to make him look big time. Yeah. Because uh, usually the limos and the suit and, and things like that showing up to the building, those segments are saved for the big time wrestlers. So in that aspect, okay, it makes you pay attention. It makes you like, oh, who the heck is this guy? He's getting the, the big time treat. But yeah, I, it does not fit Chris Benoit at all. This is a different way to introduce somebody compared to what they've been doing. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think if you were just a casual fan that had never really followed Chris Benoit before, um, of course, I knew him from his WCW run before and anything I had read about him. Probably even had an ECW tape or two with him and re read some other or seen some Japan stuff by that point. But um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think for the casual fan that saw that, it's who is that guy? He's in a suit and he has a limo. It's, it was a way to put him over. But they don't really capitalize on it because we'll, we'll get into that in the next several weeks. Basically how he's treated as far as uh, coming in, just kind of lumped in there with the Malenkos and the Guerreros. And not that that's a bad thing, but uh, in regards to being pushed, that is a bad thing. We move on with the show. Oh, it must be that time again. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Steve, I know you're digging this. <laughs> So it's more Disco Inferno shenanigans. Uh, they cut his music while he's out here dancing this week. It was great, though. I loved it. He, he has a boombox sitting next to him, though. So he picks up the boombox and just starts playing his music all over again. More classic stuff here. I'm loving this comedy stuff. And uh, we got our next match getting ready to go in the ring. It's going to be Big Bubba Rogers taking on Hawk. And uh, as Big Bubba Rogers comes out... <laughs> he kind of looks at Disco kind of funny, but Bubba Rogers' music is playing. Bubba's walking to the ring, and he kind of lowers his sunglasses and just gives Disco a look. As Disco just keeps dancing with the boombox. And uh, more of the same as Road Warrior Hawk comes out next, and Hawk kind of stops, and he takes exception to Disco Inferno <laughs> dancing while Hawk's 
making his way to the ring. So Hawk kind of jumps at him, lunges at him, and scares Disco away, but only for a moment. And this is, this is the corniest part. As Hawk's walking to the ring, Disco runs back out, grabs a, a WCW hat, cheap piece of merch from a fan uh, that they were probably handed for free, and he grabs the hat and he sticks it on one of Hawk's uh, spikes on his shoulder pad to where Hawk doesn't realize it's on there. So Hawk walks to the ring with this hat hanging on the spike, and I didn't find that humorous. In fact, I, I thought that was kind of lame. But just the sight of him running back out and grabbing the hat and putting it on his that made me laugh. So that's that's all I got there with Disco Inferno. I, I do like the boombox this week. I thought that was clever and funny. And they picked it up so you could actually hear the music from the boombox, and it was yeah. his own entrance music. So that was pretty funny this time. Other than that, I'm still not buying it. Still not liking it. Yeah, so we get Big Bubba and Hawk in the ring, and this, this is really not much of anything either. Hawk power slams Bubba finally. Um, Disco jumps up on the apron and keeps dancing. Again, I l- thought this was hilarious. He just gets up in the middle of somebody else's match on the apron and starts dancing. I get you're not a disco fan, so maybe that's why it's not funny, or maybe we just have a completely different sense of humor on certain things. I don't know, but I, I thought this was cool. Again, like I said, Quang wasn't over, so automatically he was cool to me and my cousin. We loved the hell out of Quang. It was a, it was an inside joke between us, but it became a reality. Like we just marked out for Quang because we made it made the joke so big that we believed our own joke, you know. And it was that was kind of like the here for me. I just it was so stupid. It was funny. I liked it. I thought it was funny. However, Hawk does not think it's funny. And he attacks Disco on the outside, beats the shit out of him in the aisle, and winds up getting countered out in a minute and 39 seconds. I didn't understand the point of this at all. Big Bubba, Big Bubba gets the win here in a minute and 39. Hawk comes back to the ring. Uh, couldn't they have done this like without the match? Like made Hawk, I thought the, the count out made Hawk look stupid. He realized, he had to have been realizing what was going on. And he gets countered out and immediately runs back to the ring. All to go beat up Disco Inferno or go after Disco Inferno. And it made no sense unless Hawk's going to murder Disco in the future or uh, Hawk gets a rematch with Bubba and beats Bubba or something like that, which I don't think any of those things happen. So I didn't really understand the entire point of this. And it made Hawk look stupid. I I say scratch the match and just have Hawk and Disco get into it in the aisle to begin with and then just kind of cancel the match from there. Would have made a lot better sense for everyone involved. Yeah, or either do that or just have him beat the hell out of Disco and leave him laying and then maybe have Disco costing the match. That way it can lead into a, a match between them two. Utilize the angle instead of making Hawk look like a complete idiot. But yeah, I'm with you, man. Stupid. And this four-match format sucks. Yeah, we've <laughs> got two matches now that have both went uh, roughly 90 seconds. So yeah, this is not good at all. But we got to make time for a Hulk Hogan promo, and this is Hogan's first time in black. No mustache, because the rule is once you get something shaved, it, it doesn't grow back as fast as it does any other time. So Hogan has no mustache here still. He's sporting black now, no more red and yellow for the time being. He has a new attitude. He even tells Mean Gene to shut up and Jimmy Hart to keep his mouth shut as well. Hogan talks about the promoter up north dying right now and choking on his own ego. I thought that was interesting. He also talks about beating Andre in Detroit, even though it was Pontiac, but whatever. Talks about beating Andre in Detroit, which basically he's alluding that he's, he's going to beat Andre's son in Detroit as well here at Halloween Havoc. What did you think of Hogan in black? Hogan telling Mean Gene to shut up. Hogan referencing Vince without saying his name, saying that his, he's choking on his own ego and, uh, and every, all, all this Hogan stuff. What did you think about any of this? I didn't mind it. I, I thought it was, I think it was just Hogan's way of trying something different. I mean, the, the red and yellow wasn't working hadn't worked since he got to wcw he has this this uh avenue to promote himself every monday on a live tv show that he's never really had before 
and he's just trying a new thing. We all know there's some some probably legit heat there between Hogan and Vince and yeah. a lot of stuff going on. So I, I didn't mind it. I thought it was very different. It was very clever. Uh, it doesn't help Hogan at all in the fact of like getting over or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, and we all know what happens too with Jimmy Hart coming up. So I, that, that's just planting seeds for that because uh, he's been kind of roughing up Jimmy Hart the last couple weeks. Tell him to shut up or not listening to him or, you know, throwing things that I think he threw his belt at him at one point. So there's different things that he's been doing to Jimmy Hart. The mean Gene one is a little, a little awkward because I never seen him disrespect Gene like that. Yeah. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was good. I liked it. At the end of the promo, we cut to the outside, outside of the arena and the Giants monster truck comes pulling up into the arena with police cars chasing him. And I thought it was humorous. Uh, you got Kevin Sullivan in the back, Zodiacs in the back. Standing up in the back of the truck as it's pulling in looks absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Zodiac, the way Beefcake had dressed up like that and just standing in the back of the truck as it comes flying into the building or into the uh, parking lot. Uh, Hogan storms off to go, I guess, to go confront the giant, but nobody, none of these guys are ever heard from again or mentioned again on this show, so I'm not really sure what happens there. The big buildup is Hogan wants the giant. The giant pulls in. Hogan goes after the giant, but we don't see or hear anything else about it. Oh, man. See, this is – I love – I absolutely love uh, the Zodiac rolling in rolling in here. <laughs> it's uh, so ridiculous. It's, so, it's awesome. It's an unintentional comedy at its best. Oh, my God, dude. He has that hand up and his hair spiked up with the hook or the, the whatever the hell he put in his hair to spike yeah. it up in the middle. And he's, like, leaning back. It looks like the wind's taking him a little bit. And, like, that all-black sky right behind him with his uh, white and black get-up that he had. Oh man, it, it's so tremendous! It's so awesome. I love it. I laugh every single time I see it. Yeah, it's um, it's, and, and I'm just gonna do a spoiler. This is my absolute favorite part of this whole show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. I love it that much. It's so good, man. Yeah, I think this beats out uh, watching Kamala run through the mall barefoot to the ring on the uh, debut episode of Nitro. So yeah, I, up until now, that was my uh, most unintentional fun bit on the show. But now I think Zodiac's got him beat with the uh, ride on the mo- back of the monster truck into the building. I'm gonna have to jiff it, and we'll, we'll put it up on our Twitter. Oh, absolutely. yeah, absolutely, it's good stuff. It has to be up. And we head to the main event now, and it's Ric Flair. It's a rematch from last week inside a cage. This week, it's Ric Flair and Arn Anderson. The crowd is hot as Flair plays the babyface here on offense and. Uh, they take a break one minute into the cage match. I'm just like, are you serious? A commercial, one minute into the match, and when they come back, they start going into the finish. Immediately, Arn Anderson with a spine buster. And during the break, we see a clip shown of Flair and Arn fighting on the top rope and Arn losing his balance or getting knocked off or whatever. But they come back and Arn delivers the spine buster. Both guys uh, go face first into the cage. One, they take turns running each other in the face. Flair grates Arn's face in there, but there's no bleeding. So both guys have been thrown in the cage. Arn has had his face raked, grated across the cage, and there's no bleeding. Uh, if that doesn't expose the business, I don't know what does, because uh, back in the day, if you did any of this stuff, these guys were bleeding immediately. And so you're telling me that, you know, Flair with all his might's doing this and Arn's not even got a, a bruise to show for it. Uh, I, I say avoid spots. I know, I know you're in a cage, so there's certain spots you expect people to do. But if it's going to expose things or, or make no sense, I would avoid doing it. And that's a move that I would avoid doing, even though I love the spot. I think it looks great. But if there's no blood mm-hmm. at the end of the spot, it's, it's kind of pointless to do the spot. 
Yeah, I'm with you. It, it makes it makes the cage pointless other than keeping somebody out. Um, obviously, there's no blood at this point in WCW. Yeah. Um, it, it's complete family-friendly entertainment here. So I, I wasn't expecting anything like that, but I'm with you. Why, not, why even do the spots if you know you can't bleed? That takes it makes the moves useless. Yeah, and you can call me behind the times or whatever, but I don't even understand the point of a cage match if there's no blood permitted. It just it takes away the entire point of the cage match for me. And I don't know if you know younger fans feel differently, and they're more about watching, waiting for all these spots that take place off the top of cages now and things like that. In my day, the whole point of the cage match was an ultra mega grudge match and there was going to be blood and, and violence and it's just become uh i don't even i see a cage match and it means nothing more to me than a regular match anymore yeah i i couldn't even tell you the last cage match that meant something and we get rick flair in control of the match here here comes brian pillman down to the ring he's climbing the cage because that's another thing that always bugged me about cage matches they were meant to keep people out but i don't know how many damn people just climbed right over if it's if, if the point of a wwf cage match and this is wcw but if the point of a wwf cage match is to go through the door or climb over the top. If you can climb over the top, shouldn't that mean guys are able to climb over the top to get into? So I don't understand the point of the cage keeping people outside of it. And it almost doesn't here as Pillman climbs all the way to the top of the cage before Flair knocks him off. Flair goes into the figure four. Arn uh, winds up popping him with a foreign object and Flair goes down. Arn steals another win. On TV, the match goes four minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, you're talking one minute before the commercial break. Another three minutes after the commercial break. And then, of course, there was a commercial in between, so the match probably really did go closer to seven minutes. But basically, on TV, you got a, a four-and-a-half-minute cage match. And I thought it was good. Uh, I, thought, I thought it was good what we saw. This could have easily been a pay-per-view type match given, you know, if it was given real time. Uh, but obviously, they're going in another direction here with the whole Arn and Flair and Pillman thing, which we'll save for later. But I just thought they give these guys this cage match, and everything they did was fine. I thought it was great. but. It was a cage match that got four and a half minutes, which continues to be an issue here on this episode. You got two 90-second matches and two four-and-a-half-minute matches. What do you think about the match? What do you think about the time of this match? Uh, your thoughts, man. The match itself was good. It just, like you said, it didn't have enough time. Some of the, mat the spots, you could tell like they were working an old-school cage match to a degree where you're trying to get blood and get the blood and guts type deal. But at the same time, uh, this cage was really sh low. It was like a short cage. Yeah. Like Pillman, all he really had to do was jump, and he was in or halfway up the cage or three-quarters of the way up the cage. So it, it didn't really have the effect that they were going for. You can tell that's it's one of the things that Bischoff's going to have an issue with going forward is he's trying to do stuff just to outdo Vince. Whether it makes sense or not, it doesn't matter. He's just going to throw shit out there to get ahead of Vince or yeah, lots do of something hot to Vince instead of lots of hot shot and lots of like you said it doesn't make any sense this feud wasn't even like peaking yeah it didn't even marinate long enough to even warrant a cage match so let's just throw yeah. him in it just so we can beat vince to the cage match and that that's going to get you in trouble in the long run and, yeah it seems um, like week right to week here, it doesn't hurt right and i was just gonna say it seems like week to week with this iron flare feud that uh every week is like a month's worth of feud so, like, their match last week should have been their next pay-per-view match. And their cage match this week should have been their next pay-per-view match. So, I feel like they're, they're almost like Memphis booking here, where every week at the Coliseum's your, your pay-per-view, so to speak. And so, every week, your, your feud escalates basically what would be another month in another territory. And that's just the way it feels like they're doing right here with, with Flair and Arn, because they need 
something for TV in order to counteract uh, whatever Vince has going on. So I agree with you, man. And it's time for the Nitro segment of the night, Steve. Who do you got? There's uh, Sabu and Jerry Lynn had a really good match. This cage match was really good. Very, very short, especially for a cage match, and especially for a Flair and Arn match. But both matches I thought were very good for two different, completely different reasons. Yeah, I, I kind of spoiled it earlier. I'm going with the Hogan interview and the, and the Giant showing up. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I, get inter- I laugh and get entertained more from that than anything else on the show. <laughs> I mean, if I had to pick, pick an actual match or something like that, I'd probably go with Sabu and JL just because they were so crazy and they were doing things that you didn't, like I said, you didn't see before. So, But as far as entertainment purposes alone, it's Zodiac rolling up on the back of the monster truck. Just an awesome visual. Yeah. I mean, hey, man, this that's what this is all about. We're picking our segments, what we found the most entertaining on the show, not necessarily what, what everyone else is, you know, thinks is the, the big moment on the show. And that is a very memorable scene. So uh, I'm, I'm down for that, man. It's not my pick. I do find it hilarious. Uh, but, like, you know, it's just such a quick piece of the segment. Plus, I don't want to give Hogan any props for anything leading into that. So, yeah, definitely a cool little uh, a visual, though. I, I'm down with that. I find it very hard to choose between the cage match and the Sabu and JL match because Sabu and JL, obviously, they're they're doing the, the new routine out there, the, the new upbeat wrestling match that uh, became commonplace on the indies and ECW and Japan and things like that at this point. So it was... It was Probably the best match on the show for me. I loved everything Arn and Flair did. It's just that they took a 20-minute match and made it four and a half minutes or six minutes or whatever the case was with the commercial. But that wasn't their fault by any means. They did everything they could with the time that they had. A very good old-school match. A very good wrestling match uh, for, for a cage match that didn't involve blood. But So I'm going to have to give the nod to Sabu and Jerry Lynn simply because they had a simple one-on-one match and got everything they could in. Whereas the cage match, it needed more time to really marinate and, and get even better. And there was nothing wrong with anything Flair and Arn did. It just wasn't long enough, especially for a cage match. So, and then the, uh, I forgot to mention that the show closes, Nitro closes, and I, I jumped ahead there. Sorry, guys. Ric Flair gets on the, the microphone at the end of the show, and he, he says next week he wants Arn and Pillman in a handicap match. So we'll see what happens there next week. Two-on-one is what Flair is calling for at this point. Flair versus Arn and Pillman in a handicap match next week. So. But there you have it, the Nitro segment of the night for me, Sabu and JL. For you, it's Zodiac flying down <laughs> down on a monster truck, so very, very cool. And we move over to WWF Raw is taped for October 9th. This was taped back on uh, 925 as well in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're here on October 9th. The show kicks off, and this is basically dominates most of the entire episode. It's a six-man tag involving Shawn Michaels, Diesel, and The Undertaker taking on Yokozuna, Owen Hart, and the British Bulldog. And you can't really get much bigger than this name-wise uh, here in the WWF. We, have, we saw Brett last week in a solid match with Lafitte, and now we basically have the other six big names left in the WWF. Yeah, it's insane to look at this. Diesel, Sean, and Undertaker on the same side of the ledger. Uh, it's just insane. And this is Bill it's Watts booking. Yeah, Bill Watts booking here. Before the match starts, we get a, an interview with Shawn Michaels, a clip from um, a Survivor Series press conference. It's kind of a shoot promo of sorts. Uh, Shawn admits he's not as cool as he is on TV, and he gets choked up realizing how much uh, the kids mean to him. Meanwhile, he's, he's getting choked, in, not getting choked up from, from the children, he's getting choked in a locker room and beat down outside a bar because of his attitude. But uh, that's, that's for another day. So I just thought it was fun for Sean to look so humble there. Meanwhile, he's, he's getting roughed up by the Blue Twins for having an attitude and getting his ass handed to him in a bar so, a parking lot somewhere uh, all within the next week or so. So it's just, I, thought, I thought it was kind of funny, funny timing for this. 
Yeah, was you buying this? Was you buying what he was selling here? Uh, you know, his delivery, I didn't think Sean was a good of a good enough actor to be faking this. So I think, you know, there's guys that aren't exactly the greatest character in the world, but when they're in the right moment at the right time, it can hit them the right way. So I felt like maybe he felt this to some degree, but he he had such issues, anger issues and other issues, obviously, that um, something came out, but there were other, obviously, overbearing issues that Sean had going on. So it really was null and void, even if he really meant, meant it to some degree to me anyway. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of sad that we could even question the sincerity of it. And as for some kids who are like 98% attendance at school, so obviously these are good kids and working hard and they get to meet Shawn Michaels. And if it was authentic and real, I mean, it was probably as real as I've ever seen Shawn Michaels. It's like yeah. the most realistic I've ever seen. It felt authentic. But it's hard to say with him. I mean, he could have been. I, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. I'm not going to speculate or do anything. Yeah, yeah. So, I can't. I can't speculate. What, what I mean, Sean, yeah. I mean, I can't speculate either. I know what you're saying, though. I mean, it's it's Sean. So unfortunately, you have to kind of question it. Um, do I think that was real? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was real. I think the, a lot. I think what he was saying was real in that moment. Uh, unfortunately, you know, maybe that turns off, and is you know, he thinks a different way once he's in a different setting, so a different environment. Like I said, I don't, I don't know, Sean. I can't speak for Sean. I, I don't want to speculate either. But I, I get where you were going with that, and it's unfortunate that we, we even have to think like that. But that's just, it is what it is. Anyway, the match starts off. The big six-man tag starts off. It's uh, Sean and Owen in the ring. Good choice there. Uh, we wind up with a six-man brawl very fast. Double boot from Taker and Diesel sends Yoko through the ring to the floor, or not through the ring, but through the ropes to the floor. And all the heels take a powder on the outside. Match goes on. Uh, Sean takes a little heat. Owen goes for a flying splash, and they cut to a commercial. Perfect timing. Owen launches off for the splash, and they go into the commercial break. And no fear, because this is taped, so we missed nothing. Uh, we learn that Owen missed the splash, but if you notice, they're laying exactly where they missed the splash based on the, the instant replay as we came back from commercials. So the only thing you missed was about th three seconds of, of Owen. Uh, the only benefit of being taped is that we're, the matches are edited where you're really not missing anything. Uh, they simply picked the match up where they left off before the break, and uh, as Owen missed the splash, the two men are still laying there. Sean makes a hot tag to Diesel, and Bulldog gets a hot tag as well. Diesel drills all three heels. Owen hits Diesel from the outside in the back, lets Bulldog pick him up. Bulldog hits the running power slam on Diesel, but the Undertaker breaks up the three count, so no go there for a moment anyway. But when the referee gets with the Undertaker, he's admonishing the Undertaker, Yokozuna sneaks in from behind, leg drops Diesel. I don't know how the referee didn't feel or hear that. But he leg drops Diesel. Bulldog makes the cover <laughs> again. And Bulldog pins the World Heavyweight Champion in 12 minutes. Yeah, this is a really cool match. With some of the names, like Yoko, uh, clearly. He even did his part. He wasn't in very much. He's getting the Andre treatment where he's just kind of hanging out on the apron. But when you take that double big boot from Diesel and Taker, he fell to the outside, and then he's kind of walking around, and then he smoked the pole. Like, he ran right into the pole selling so he did his part. I mean, he didn't do a lot, but he did his part. The crowd was hot, and this is like the third hour of taping, I'm guessing, or however long they've been in the been there. It was actually pretty pretty up for this one. Uh, all in all, it was a really fun, entertaining match. These guys did good, and Diesel laid clean in the middle of the ring uh, for the Bulldog to get him ready for the in your house match. So, you know, Steve, in some worlds, smoking a pole means something completely different, and I'll just leave it there. <laughs> I'll remove him from the repertoire. He nailed the ring post. Okay? There you go. The ring post. <laughs> uh, so, uh, 
Post-match, uh, Mabel comes down, Dean Douglas down too, eventually for whatever reason, I guess because they're getting ready to wrestle The Undertaker and Sean at the next in your house, or they're supposed to. Actually, neither match winds up happening, but Mabel and Dean Douglas come down, and they, they uh, join Camp Cornette at ringside. Mabel and Yoko just murder The Undertaker. I mean, avalanches, splashes, leg drops for like what seemed like 10 minutes, just 400 friggin' leg drops and splashes to the poor Undertaker. Uh, they eventually <laughs> claim this is where Taker suffers that broken orbital bone, which is coming up here, but it's actually not. Uh, or he takes a wild shot, an accidental punch to the uh, jaw from Mabel, which actually breaks his orbital bone, uh, but not on this show, uh, at a late, later house show. Uh, Dean Douglas takes out Sean, drops him across the steel steps. Uh, meanwhile, the Bulldog just keeps doing this silly, like, jumping stomp on Diesel in the ring. And it looks so hokey and lame compared to what's going on. Sean's getting dropped on the cage or on the stairs. Taker's getting just obliterated beyond obliteration. But two guys that weigh like 500 pounds just landing on his face 80 times in a row. And meanwhile, Bulldog's just jumping up in the air and stomping Diesel with these light little stomps. And this is your world title match that you're setting up, by the way. And that's how we, we go into break. Yeah. Cam Cornette and, and, and company have basically obliterated all of the baby faces. And this just reeks. And not in a bad reek. This just exudes bill watts style booking just get as much heat as you can on the heels bulldog pin diesel which sounds like common sense because he's getting a title shot let's prove that he can pin him even if yoko cheated to help him at the pin they just leave the babyface laying and you know that somebody else different is booking because you've never seen anything like this before in the wwf every baby face you have minus bret hart every top baby face just obliterated destroyed and just left laying dead yeah, it was definitely different, and it, it it worked. It was cool as hell. Like you said, the bad guys never never got to stand tall like that for as big as they did. I know Sean like got picked up and draped over the, the steel steps by Douglas. Uh, like you said, Taker just got obliterated by both of those guys. Just a really, uh, really, really cool segment. It was definitely different, not what you're accustomed to from Vince and company. Yeah, and we come back from break, and Vince is doing that monotone voice, you know, where everything's real, pal. Yeah, just kind of talking about everything that just transpired. All the baby faces are still laid out dead here. I wouldn't refer to this as realistic, but it's far more realistic than what we normally got from the WWF up until here. So every hero you can think of, like I said, besides Brett, laid out and dead. We go through a commercial break. We come back. They're still laid out. They're still being helped up and helped to the back. Uh, you didn't see that all the time either, so. And it's kind of funny because, so we have Diesel, Sean, and Taker laid out here. And if you remember at the end of last week's show, Isaac Yankum laid out Bret Hart. So really every baby face, every top baby face, maybe, maybe besides Razor, have been just destroyed in the last, you know, two weeks of television. You got to get all that heat on the, on the heels in order to sell the big matches. That's old school logic anyway, thinking by Bill Watts here. And that's pretty much what he's done. Just common sense says that should work. If you see your, your favorites getting destroyed and left laying, then you're obviously going to want to pay to watch them get their revenge. I mean, it's just basic booking 101. I've just never seen the heels. Yeah, I've just never seen the heels so strongly put over to where the baby faces just looked helpless in the WWF uh, to this degree. So I thought this was different, and uh, I kind of liked it. So uh, we, go, we go back to last week, and we, we see the aforementioned uh, Isaac Yankum attack on Bret Hardy, left Bret laying with a DDT on the floor. Then we get a replay of Bret Hart versus Isaac Yankum from SummerSlam, which fills a lot of time here on this episode. And the match, the match ends, I believe, in a disqualification. Jerry Lawler winds up 
interfering and helping Isaac Yankum hang Bret Hart in the ropes. I just thought this was a lame way to fill time. Like, that was not a really good match to begin with. Now you're giving away a match from uh, SummerSlam, which here in October, I really don't even care. I just, I don't know, man. It just felt like they had nothing else to put here. So we get this match. It's almost like, here, you guys can have this. We don't, we don't have enough stuff to fill time here. And this basically sets up a cage, the yeah. cage match next week between Brett and Yankum. What did you think about them throwing this match on the show? I felt ripped off. Like, I wanted to I mean, see something more, more uh, up to date. Yeah, I don't know if it's a sign of how thin their roster is at this point or, or what. I didn't mind it. I mean, they've been pushing this feud really hard going into the cage match next week. So, I mean, you showed them what happened the week prior. They might not show in the SummerSlam match. Give you everything that happened between these two that's leading to this cage match. To me, it, it was okay. I didn't mind it at all. Uh, I, it, I wonder, I'm curious... Uh, Meltzer doesn't have like the hourly or quarterly breakdowns just yet going on here, but I'm curious to see like how the the ratings did during this time. Like, did people switch channels and move because they're seeing a match they theoretically probably could have already seen, whether on pay per view or Coliseum video or written it, you know? So that'd be interesting to see that, but I didn't necessarily mind it. It was a quick fast forward for me. But we do wind up back in the arena, Grand Rapids Arena, for another match. In the second and uh, the last match on this episode of Raw, it's Fatu taking on Skip. And while not pushed properly, I thought the WWF had some really solid mid-card talent here in this period. Fatu here, Savio Vega, love Savio Vega. And even poor Skip, stuck in this gimmick looking like Susan Powder. Solid match, great bumping by Skip, as expected. Uh, Skip tries a top rope headbutt at one point, lands head-to-head with Fatu. Of course, Skip hurts himself because Fatu's Samoan. Fatu gets up, makes the comeback, does that little dance that he used to do. Sonny winds up distracting Fatu. Skip tries to suplex, superplex him off the top rope but gets thrown down, and Fatu winds up getting the win with a big splash off the top here in 5 minutes, 49 seconds. Yeah, not a bad match. Um, like you said, these guys had, they had some decent talent. It's just... <laughs> There are so many bad gimmicks coming through town that a lot of people forgot some of the talent that did stick around that was decent and could actually work. Fatu and Skip are definitely two of those guys that can go. And Skip's very underrated. Chris Candido, he's a hell of a performer. Um, he can get not watch his WWF stuff. He's pretty dang entertaining. And his selling is just really good. It sticks out during this time as far as WWF people go. But yeah, decent little match here. And then we're reminded, a uh, recap from earlier in the sixth man where the baby faces got murdered. And backstage, it's, well, handsome Doc Hendricks at the locker room door of the baby faces. He says, Big Daddy Cool has lost his cool. He tried to talk to Shawn Michaels, but Shawn collapsed. But he's doing okay now. He had to make sure to put that in there. And uh, Undertaker got the worst of it, and that's to say the least. <laughs> I agree with Doc in that uh, respect. But um, Doc actually offers to bust into their locker room. I would have loved to have seen that. And, and force an interview upon them, but he, they decide, no, it's, it's not for the best, so uh, we don't get an interview from the guys. They're, they're presumably on the other side of the locker room door just sulking and, and licking their wounds. And we cut to a promo backstage. I thought this was funny, too. Jim Ross invades the Camp Cornette locker room, and they do their best the moment Ross enters to cut Ross out of the picture, and all you see for the remainder of the entire promo is Jim Ross's hand holding a microphone as Jim Cornette and the British Bulldog cut a promo and uh, Cornette talks about wh- what the heels did to the faces says the bulldog will beat diesel for the title in your house and uh, tells him to take it back to England because the Americans don't deserve the belt. 
Bulldog points out that basically he's clutch uh, in, in these big fight type matches. He brings up beating Brett at, at SummerSlam in front of 80 some thousand people. Points out he just pinned Diesel earlier here on the program. So Bulldog thinks he's got it in the bag. He's going to become the next world champion at In Your House. Yeah, it wasn't a bad promo. Some of the stuff he said was pretty ridiculous. I think Cornette said he got his hat <laughs> from Princess Diana. and Yeah, it wasn't bad. I mean, Cornette's awesome on the mic, even here, selling this stuff. And um, Bulldog carried his own here. I thought it was uh, – he's just flexing and slapping his arms the whole time like Cornette's going in. And he looks absolutely ridiculous with that stupid hat on. But yeah, that hat was ridiculous, that brown hat, whatever the hell. That corduroy hat it looked like or something. Uh, I'll, I'll say this much. Between Davey Boy just it looked like he was having fun there, like you said, slapping his chest and flexing and making all these muscles. It was the most animated I've seen Davey Boy as a heel so far. It, it actually came across as an actual heel here. Uh, a fun heel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember Davy Boy continuing to do this a whole lot, but he's yeah, he's starting to get the I think hang he's of it. Starting to get into it. Yeah, I think he's starting to get <laughs> into if, it a little bit. And if you didn't watch the first half hour of the show, and if you didn't watch the replays about ten minutes ago or five minutes ago, and if you didn't <laughs> watch Doc Hendricks or Jim Ross with these promo segments, <laughs> there we're we're, re- we're shown the replay again. Of the six-man match that just happened about a half an hour, 45 minutes ago. I, I mean, we get it. This is only an hour program. It's not like a three-hour Raw where at the top of every hour you have to remind us what happened in the first hour. This is a one-hour show, and the entire show is basically a match and then replays of that match. So they beat this shit into the ground. But, uh, I mean, that's basically it as far as that match goes. Uh, we're just reminded again before the show goes off the air. Basically, this entire show, even though Fatu and Skip were on it, this was a one-match show. This was to get over one big angle, three different feuds, all at one time. Yeah, and I thought they did a good job doing that. It, it, it worked. It drove home the craziness of what they just saw. It's something you didn't really see very much. And to be honest, like when I was watching it, it didn't feel like overkill. I, I thought they was just really, really stressing the importance of what's happened on this show. And, yeah, uh, I, th- I think it was the lack of... Uh commercials that didn't really separate it as far for me and also i did yeah. fast forward through that SummerSlam match so really this is other than fatu's uh, matches the only thing i saw so it just kind of it was overkill for me a little bit probably wasn't as bad as it came off uh if you were watching it in real time yeah. back then but especially when you've never it's seen something like, like it before it was a huge deal but uh, i just i had enough of it by the by the time the show was yeah. over it's kind of like show- that Guts and Glory uh, clash from the memory grenade where they have those things in and out of commercials. And when you don't have the commercials, it's just like, bam, bam. You have four of them, two of them back to back real quick. And it just, it does get overkill, even though it's not intended to do that. But yeah. I understand completely what you're saying there. And the show closes with Vince McMahon announcing that if Jerry Lawler interferes in next week's cage match between Bret Hart and Isaac Yankum, that there will be a special shark cage designed specifically for Jerry Lawler, but only if he interferes. So uh, it seems like he's going to interfere, <laughs> would be my guess. You can pretty much count on it. Uh, and that concludes the episode of Raw, but before we get going, I wanted to point out since this episode of Raw took place, even though it was recorded on September 25th, it aired on October 9th, so I wanted to, I wanted to read this piece of news that I, I grabbed here. On the October 5th afternoon charity show in Madison Square Garden, I've mentioned this before, Shawn Michaels was allegedly confronted by the Blue Twins in the dressing room. That's the Bruce Brothers, Ron and Don Harris, if you will. Uh, according to the story, Don Harris put a chair against the dressing room door to keep anyone from coming in, and Ron Harris snatched Michaels up by the throat and held him against the wall. And uh, Michaels had a scare thrown into him, but wasn't roughed up or hurt to the point where he missed any show date. The Blue Twins' final night with the promotion 
was in St. John's on October 9th, so no disciplinary action was taken. And this is a thing of legend now. A lot of people have told this story and bring it up quite often about when the Bruce Brothers roughed up Sean or uh, put the fear of God into him because they had just gotten absolutely sick of his ego and his mouth and his attitude backstage. I don't even know if he did anything directly to them, and I'm guessing he didn't because those guys, I don't know, I've heard some stories. Uh, they go far beyond wrestling. <laughs> it just seems like they just gotten sick of his mouth and his attitude, and they knew they were leaving anyway. So uh, they kind of took matters into their own hands. I can't say that I blame them. You know, kudos to them. Uh, I mean, when you have four guys sticking up and taking, you know, taking over the company and and things like that, it's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. The fact that they had, like you said, they had the balls. I mean, they probably, it's not the balls to do it. It's just the fact that to give up a gig like the WWF. But if you know you're leaving, and you know Sean ain't going to do nothing, you might as well take advantage and do what you got to do because uh, somebody's got to get him in check. And obviously this didn't work because we know how it goes for Sean going forward. But it's one of those things that, and we'll talk about this as we go through this, but I'm not a fan of Shawn Michaels. His entering work is next to none. He's one of the greatest entering performers of all time. But the person himself makes it extremely difficult to appreciate his entering talent because he's a terrible, terrible, uh, he was anyway, a person to work with and just somebody that was just miserable. And he took it out on everybody else from what I can gather. That's just ridiculous. So kudos to the Blues Brothers for doing what they had to do. We also learned that the Undertaker suffered a broken orbital bone on a match against Mabel on October 7th in Providence, Rhode Island. Of course, they're going to play it up here uh, where Yokozuna and Mabel leg dropped the Undertaker 40 times as being where the uh, injury occurred, which makes sense. It was TV, so at least you have something to reference, and it's a really good uh, storyline that works out for them. Uh, of course, Undertaker's going to be on the shelf all the way to, until Survivor Series, though, because of this injury. Yeah, it's one of those things that he was gone. You know, he seemed like he was around forever, but he had timely injuries that kept him fresh. If he comes back for a year and a half, he would get hurt and be gone for a month or two, and it kept him fresh and never stale, and he was always good at pivoting his characters to something else and, and things like that. So, yeah, it stinks he's gone for, what, a month and a half, two months almost. It's it's kind of good because he, he needs those little breaks there to keep himself fresh because that gimmick can get stale for sure. And so on the weekend of September 23rd, Vince McMahon called a meeting with all the talent. He announced that Bill Watts would uh, begin taking charge of the company, basically running the uh, day-to-days as far as creative goes. Vince was going to oversee more of the business structure and allow Bill Watts to take over the wrestling company. Of course, that doesn't last very long before Vince puts his hands back into things, and Bill Watts doesn't play that. Bill Watts quits the company on October 13th, so Watts wasn't there for very long. Basically, this taping we just got was all of the Bill Watts we got. So uh, take it for what it was. We'll see if things change back to the way they were before. So not the only thing that happened on October 13th, but we'll save that for the next edition of Monday Warfare because there's another story involving Shawn Michaels and a Syracuse nightclub. Uh, But we'll save that for next episode. Don't want to go too much into detail here this week. Just some big news coming out of this. Undertaker suffers an injury. He's out to Survivor Series. Bill Watts quits the company, which changes some of the booking plans, I'd have to imagine. So that's where we're at with everything. and. I had I forgot to ask you, what was your Raw segment of the night? I mean, there's really no discussion. Uh, 
Skip and Fatu is definitely not going to be it. Uh, rehash SummerSlam match is not going to be it. So it just leaves the six, the six man. The whole the whole angle for the whole night. I, I think it, you can wrap it all into one, including the interviews with the, or the reporting from Doc and the interview with Bulldog. I, I felt like it all ran together. I thought it was really well done. Yeah, no disrespect to Fatu and Skip because they had a, a decent TV match. There was nothing wrong with it, but the, everything that wasn't involved with this six man tag just felt like things to fill time to separate what they needed to separate for the six man tag. I mean, literally the whole six man tag, the the brawl afterwards, the interviews and everything else, and the, and the replays and whatnot had to have taken up damn near ninety percent of the program. So I'm basically forced to go with the six man tag and the post match mm-hmm. shenanigans, even though it was huge anyway, and I have to pick it anyway. It's really the whole show. So that was at least different compared to, to the usual WWF stuff. So it's a, just a shame to learn that Bill Watts is already gone before this even makes air, or shortly after this this episode makes air. Yeah, it would been interesting to see where he was going. And could you imagine like a WrestleMania book by Watts? That oh would have been interesting. Just getting there. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the ratings are in. Raw does a 2.6 rating with a 3.8 share. Nitro does a 2.6 rating with a 3.8 share. No, I, <laughs> that wasn't a typo on my screen. I didn't stutter. I didn't, I didn't make a flub. They do identical ratings and identical shares. And even Steven tied. Uh, it was actually the largest total wrestling audience to date as both raw and nitro tied again, but the shares even tied this week and look at, uh, do the math on the shares. The shares are climbing a little bit here. Now we're almost at an 8% share. We're get, getting very close. So that goes to show you this isn't just about the product or the better match or what, what, who had the better show. It's just about who can draw in the interest and keep the fans on their channel or the casual fans from flipping away. The WWF managed to keep their fan base this week while WCW draws in equal viewers as well. So there were more people actually with eyes on the sets this week than in, in weeks prior. So, uh, Good job by both companies getting people to tune into what they had going on. The steel cage match and then the uh, this big six-man tag with all those big names involved. Yeah, it's uh, it's awesome, man. And to be honest with you, as a kid watching it, like every Monday was much-watched TV. I could not wait to, you know, you never want your weekends in when you're in school and you got to go to school for eight hours and do that whole deal. But, you know, I went to school and... I came home, did my homework, and maybe went outside and played a little bit or did something. But when 8 or 9 o'clock Eastern came on, the channel, the TV was on, and it was wrestling for the next hour and flipping back and forth, hoping, you know, both of them weren't in commercial at the same time. So unless you lived it, you don't understand the excitement and the anticipation to every Monday. And right. that that's that's what I'm missing today. Like, I, I have no desire to even watch anything related to live wrestling on any TV channel on yeah. any night. But this, it, it's not even that great. Like the, the matches and stuff, it's really right. not. It wasn't then, but it's just the aura of having two shows and two channels with the history that both of these companies had at the time. And it's that's why you have two companies running at the exact same time with 3.8 shares. Uh, that's because the interest was there and it, it was awesome. So it's time for our take on the real winner this week. Is it Raw or Nitro? It was another tie this week, and this time it's a dead tie. Ratings are the same. Shares are the same. Which way are you leaning to vote, Steve? Uh, I, I'm going to go with Nitro. 
the the Raw had like a re, you know a replay of a SummerSlam match. There just wasn't a lot to it other than that six man match. And after like the first twelve to fifteen minutes, you could have really turned off Raw and not missed anything. Um, that is true. Except highlights and the Bulldog interview. But other than that, I mean, you didn't miss anything. Whereas Nitro, you know, you had the Sting interview, you had the Hogan interview, you had Sabu and JL, you had the Flair and uh, Arn and Pillman storyline still continuing. So you had a lot going on that meant something like every segment meant something and you didn't really want to miss any of that. So I think by default, even though the six man was awesome and the aftermath was awesome, like immediately after the match overall as a whole show, I have to go with Nitro. This one's almost a coin flip for me. I felt like Nitro offered a lot more different things, but it's like you said, uh, raw (laughs) after the first 15, 20 minutes of the show, you don't even need to watch the final uh, 40, 45 minutes of the program. Nothing, no, and again, no disrespect to the Fatu skip match, but nothing of any importance occurred. Uh, re- replay from SummerSlam match and uh, just a bunch of uh, downtime replaying video footage from the first 15 minutes of the show. So I, I, I only give Nitro the slight nod because they had different content throughout the show. Two pretty good damn matches, even if they only both went four and a half minutes. And uh, whereas Raw, and I, nothing against the six-man or the whole post-match beatdown uh, storyline, I thought it was a tremendous job. It's just, it, did, it couldn't own the show by itself. It was just so much filler to the program. And that's the only reason I give Nitro the nod is because Nitro was, didn't have nearly as much filler. It was a lot more fresh, lively, new stuff going on throughout the show, whereas Raw was a, a one-angle show, and then they just kind of let the rest of the show hang there. Yeah, and I think if they had another match besides the Brett, Yank them from SummerSlam. Yeah, if they had like definitely. another match that went like maybe three or four minutes, that was decent. Hell, if, if Hunter and Horowitz was on this show, uh, I'd be pretty tempted to pick Raw because you had two, you know, really good matches underneath, and then that six man. Look at the names you have. You have six Hall of Famers. You know, two of the greatest of all time. Owen, he's awesome, and then Yoko is awesome too. But not not in '95. But just the names there is just insane yeah. and ridiculous. But that 15, 20 minutes on a SummerSlam match hurt this show. And you guys listen at home. If you guys picked Raw, I ain't mad at you. Like I said, for me, it was almost nope. basically a coin toss, man. I just leaned towards WCW this week simply because there was a little more variety out there in a couple of matches that were pretty decent. Even though those two combined didn't add up to the length of the six-man, I don't know, man. You got Arn and Flair out there in a cage. You got JL and Sabu killing it. Uh, it was just, I don't know, overall. And you got Zodiac rolling around in a monster truck so and i think that's what <laughs> oh, did absolutely. it for me you know that's what did it that's what and, did it for me we're six weeks in now it feels so long ago that nitro made its debut but this is just six weeks old and the games and politics are already being played from every aspect from specifically from wcw but maybe even vince a little bit already now too trying to get commercials played on certain nitro shows in certain markets but We'll save that for another day as well. That wraps up episode three of Monday Warfare. Steve, any closing thoughts or comments here as we move into the second half of October? Just knowing what's coming up, there's a lot that's about to happen angle-wise that I'm excited to discuss and talk about. I, I love this stuff, man. It's it's what I grew up with. It's what I love, enjoy, and um, I can't wait to talk about it more with you. It's It's a blast, man. I'm having a great time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure on the next episode we're going to discuss a little more about Shawn Michaels and that incident in Syracuse. We're certainly going to have a couple of decent matches I know of uh, coming up in the upcoming Monday Nitros in in regards to guys like Eddie Guerrero and Malenko and things like that. So a lot of cool wrestling matches coming up. 
lot of cool angles and other things coming up. I look forward to episode four of Monday Nitro, or excuse me, Monday Warfare. I thank you guys once again. Uh, this is Ray Russell with Steve Ekstat. We'll be back again for Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, next week. Make sure you tune in.